have I got a story for you. <laughs> Shit's actually a saga of sorts. A man who had the world as his never felt richer than when he was stripped of all of his riches. Who's the wealthiest person in the world? He who needs the least, not the one that has the most. But first, a word from today's sponsor, our first, oh, it feels so fucking good, official sponsor, AndrePsyche.com. And yes, you probably spelt the last name wrong in your mind as I said it, and most likely spelt the first incorrectly as well. So let's break it down. It's A-N-D-R-E-Y and Ray, P-S-Y-C-H-E, Psy-Chi, Psyche, which is where we always fuck up the spelling, dot com. This is seriously one of the most creative West Coast cats that I've ever met and has all sorts of unique merch to be bought. I've personally been enjoying his poetry book, Space Between Crescent Shadows. Aside from the dope-ass art, the words allow for opportunities of reflection. Let me give you an example. There is a magma, magma in your arteries. This fire flows within. It's fueled by all your tragedies, transmuted with your sins. And if you're like me and had no idea how magma in your arteries could be transmuted with your sins because you had to look up transmuted, it's just what you thought. Simple change in form. But that's the whole fucking point. It's why the dude wrote it. His poetry is going to slow your mind down and give you ample opportunities to reflect on what you've been through. AndrePsyche.com is where you can find this book and another, plus all sorts of chic-ass clothing. But the best part, honestly, is if you message Andre, he will create and customize a unique, never-heard-before, completely-just-for-you song. Seriously. I didn't think it was true either until he told me about the process. This motherfucker literally produces everything. Chat with him about it. And then, bing, your inbox gets an MP3 file with a fully customized and original song. That's the level of creative swag this dude drips online. Check out the site, andrepsyche.com, for even more unique and artistic gifts. Message Andre for an exclusive promo code you can apply when you buy online. A-N-D-R-E-Y-P-S-Y-C-H-E dot com. We are also brought to you by the Getting to Know You pod. We really appreciate all the support on the social media scene. Please friend and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's all one word. Getting, number two, no, letter U pod. Also, take the time to review, rate, comment on the podcast platform that you pushed play on. Whether it's Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Podbean, Stitcher, any of them, man, we just appreciate the engagement. And finally, we have a Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And if you search us up, getting to know you pod, all one word, you can contribute to the sustainability of all the work, time, and effort that goes into helping people share their stories. It's so appreciated. And now, getting to know you. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. 
I'm gonna do a terrific show today. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. On today's show, we are getting to know Dr. George Valdez. Sir, thank you so much for uh, getting up this morning and um, allowing us to get to know you. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Sean. Uh, I don't know about getting up. I get up at 4.30 since I've been 10 years old. So oh, my God. <laughs> I, I wouldn't figure out a way that I can get up at uh, 8, 9. I mean, even like uh, on the weekends, I try to stay up like, real late to see if I can just you know, wake up late, but man, it's impossible. So I just gave up. I just get up. <laughs> Since that young, 10 years old, every day's Christmas yeah. morning. <laughs> you know, because it was, it was really interesting. <clears throat> and it's something that I recently, I wrote a, a blog lately that I called it, uh, the new slavery. And, uh, what happened is when we came from Cuba, we were very, very poor. We we're very rich in Cuba. Came to United States, very, very poor. And we had nothing to literally eat. I mean, all we had in the morning was uh, two raw eggs and a glass of this milk from Vietnam that basically didn't even mix. I can't even drink. I cannot even drink milk till today. It tasted like uh, sand water. Oh. And uh, and that's all we would have till nighttime. You know, my and my father, who was 40 years old, didn't speak the language, and a guy who had been a millionaire since he was 25 years old in Cuba. Came to the United States to clean uh, as a janitor for what we know as, uh, back then it's called Jay Byron's, which is like a J.C. Penny type of a thing. So we didn't have no lunch money, and at, at nighttime we would uh, just get food for, you know, much rice and beans, about it. Every once in a while we would have meat. And I remember seeing a friend of mine who had come from Cuba about, you know, six, seven months before us, and he had, he had uh, lunch. And I'm 10 years old. My brother is nine. My sister is five. So when my father got home, I said, hey, dad, you know, my friend George, he has, he takes a sandwich to school. And uh, I asked him, how does he do that? Because to me, it was like, <laughs> you know, I'm poor. Everybody's got to be poor, right? <laughs> That's so, that so, is exactly how kids think. Yeah. So anyway, he says, uh, I said, uh, I asked him. How he does that, and he told me that his family gets food stamps. So my dad was a man, you know, back in the, you know, those <clears throat> that era of the 40s and 50s where they used to say that kids were meant to be seen, not to be heard. Right. So my dad was a man of very, very low, few words. And uh, I said, uh, he gets food stamps. Do you know about that, dad? And he's like, now he says, yes, I do. And I'm like, well, why don't we get food stamps? And he's like, because that's for poor people. And poor people that take money from the government stay poor all their lives. And I'm like, holy cow, man. We are so poor. We haven't even gotten to poor yet. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're in the classification way underneath poor. But I remember as clear, I'm 64 today. So that's 54 years ago. He takes his finger, puts it in my chest and says, son, you figure out how to get up early and help feed your family. Oh. And I was 10 years old. You know, I had to walk. We didn't have no car or anything like that for the first three years in the U.S. So I walked literally to school to take my brother and sister like nine, ten blocks. So <clears throat> we left the house at 6.30 in the morning. 
well, lo and behold, so I mean, I had to get up at 4.30, and I got a paper route, and then I come home and, uh, you know, cut grass and wash cars, but I help feed my family. And I mentioned that because we see today, one of the things that I talk to people about, celebrities and, and people have made, especially in the minority communities, I'm, I'm a Cuban, so in the, you know, Latino, African-American community is, it's sad because when the people that make it like celebrity athletes, et cetera, the first thing they do is leave, you know, and they yeah. leave the community behind and the community, you know, is devastated. I said, there's no bad kids. It's just out of control parents. And, you know, we don't control our destiny where we're born. So instead of doing something to empower that community, like LeBron James has done, we just leave. So now you aggravate with this uh, pandemic and you take people that could get unemployment $600 and you give them another $600. Yeah. And I'm like, look, there's people that need help so bad and I feel for them and I'm, I'm the first one to fight for them. But there's people that do not. There's people that can go ahead and work. And now I see friends of mine that own company having a hard time getting their employees back because they're like, hey, I don't make $1,200 a week. Right. You know, I'm making $1,200 now. And I said, if we take from the government, <clears throat> Well, when the government gives, they'll never be able to take it, right? Because once you give something to somebody, you can't take it. And what we are doing is we're crippling an entire workforce. We're crippling an entire generation of people that are going to be accustomed to taking from the government. Listen, there are people that need it. There are single moms that desperately need help from the government. There's uh, veterans that are crippled and need help. There's age, uh, you know, elderly people that need help. But there's a great majority of people that abuse the system. And what they don't realize is they're becoming the new slavery, you know, and their new master is going to be the government. And they're going to do as the government says. Why? Because the government feeds them yeah. and gives them money instead of finding a way to empower themselves and not be dependent yeah. upon the government unless, you know, you're crippled or, or you're uh, disabled right. and go out and make your own destiny. Yeah, that's – I didn't like when I hear governors – I've heard several governors say like the majority of my state is out of work. And when you say majority, it, it's over 50%. And that's just nowhere near true. Now, unemployment's an issue, right? Like 14, 15%, even if it was 25%, but that is not a majority. But when you speak those words, it gets into people's mindsets. And then they're like, oh my God, I could be unemployed at any minute. I'd better take this help. And, um, it, it it's I think you're kind of right. Like you do become a slave to the government so that it can keep sustaining you. Yeah, and that's I mean we talk about that America is not a socialist country, and we don't want to. Uh, yeah. We hate I hate socialism. I came from a country. Why? Because I mean, look, as a young kid, every twenty year old in America in the late sixties, early seventies wanted to be a socialist, right? Because ideally, if you read. That's capital and all that. What a wonderful system. Everybody's the same. Everybody makes the same. Everybody's equal. But it's a failed system. Why? Because you take human nature out of it. Yeah. So if I want to work my butt off and, and, and create and, and do things and, and make, you know, be an entrepreneur, why should I get the same as someone that's just sitting home not wanting to do a damn thing? Right. And uh, so we don't want socialism. But if you look at what is America? I mean, Social Security, I mean, on and on and on. 80% of our budget goes to social services. Yeah. So, you know, I, I remember one time I used to advise 
uh, in Washington uh, in the uh, 90s. And I used to say, look, if you get all these people that are uh, that are getting unemployment, okay, and make them work. If they can find a job, make them work for a non-for-profit. Right. They're getting paid already, and non-for-profit desperately need help. You know, they're not getting as much donations. So today what I would do is say, take all these people in and, and help them to find jobs or, or volunteer for nonprofits. Yeah. Because we have a lot of workforce right now that can work. But I'll tell you what's going to happen is when this thing is over, we're going to have a huge workforce that might want to work, that can find a job. Why? Because the, this, this whole thing has destroyed our businesses. Yeah, <laughs> if you have nothing to return to because the businesses are – they're, they're they're not making any money. They're they're given they're incentivized to keep people on payroll and then to pay um, utilities and such with the loans that they if they accepted them. But like the rent's not going away. The people who own the buildings are going to want that money, and the tenants who are in there are not going to have it. But if you kick that tenant out, what tenant's going to have the money to move in? So oh, no, it, listen, it's a vicious cycle, Sean. You yeah. take uh, New York for example. Now they passed that you don't have to you can be evicted to generate. And that's wonderful for the people that can have no money to pay the rent. But flip it. What happens to the landlord yeah. who borrowed money to build a building? Yeah. And his bank is going to wait till January. Yeah. You know? Right. <clears throat> so it's horrible, man. Can I? And this is probably because of my ignorance. When you said your father was a millionaire in Cuba, I, I thought socialism didn't allow for millionaires because kind of like you had said, everyone is equal. Can you explain that or tell me a little bit about sure, that? Sure. And that's the reason we came from Cuba, right? Because Cuba, Cuba people have had no idea how prosperous Cuba was in the 50s and early 60s. Well, well, probably 40s and 50s because Fidel took over in 60. Prior to that, Cuba was a capitalist country. I mean, there was uh, one horrible thing about Cuba, and I tell that to my father, is what's happening in America today. There was such a disparity of income, you know, in Cuba, 95% of the wealth was owned by 5% of the people, okay. you know, and the rest of the people were struggling. That's how a guy like Fidel Castro comes in and says, I'm going to make everything equal. Of course, you're going to vote for him. Same thing's going to happen in America. Yeah. Bernie Sanders was really life. close. I'm sorry to yeah, interrupt, but, it... you know, I, I want to create capital. I believe in capitalism, but we have to find a fair system where we don't have the disparity that we have in America now. Well, we find 80 some odd percent of the population don't have $400 in savings. Our middle class is, is disappeared. Yeah. And uh, so that's, so in Cuba, when Fidel took over, it's when my parents decided to leave everything behind and come to the United States because they didn't want us growing up in a communist country. So it was a big sacrifice for my mom and dad because my mom <clears throat> did it because she was very religious and she wanted her children to grow up in a country where they could worship God freely. My dad, you know, he was a man of tremendous ethics and tremendous principle, but he really was not into the church uh, scene. He was very, very wealthy. Uh, he was he grew up poor at the age of 14 and went to work in a cafeteria. At the age of, at the age of 12, he went to work in a cafeteria in Havana because uh, his family needed money to, to be able to survive. And he ends up meeting the son of the wealthiest man in Cuba. And uh, as... This gentleman used to come, his name is Oscar, used to come every morning for breakfast. He saw how my, how much of a hustler my father was and all that. And eventually his father, my, this gentleman Oscar became my godfather, but his father 
was like, listen, son, you got to do something besides go out for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You got to get a job, you know? <laughs> so he went to my father, and they started a lumber company, became the biggest in Cuba, and they started a, a furniture manufacturer. So, you know, by the, by the time my dad was 30, he was a very wealthy man. But they'd rather give it all up to come, and my mom didn't care. Now, my mom was different. My mom, I felt that she was born with a silver spoon in her mouth. She was one of five women to go to the university and get a degree in the 40s. Oh, wow. You know, my mother uh, had an apartment in, in, in New York City when she was 30 years old. Her father was uh, one of the most notable figures of the uh, Cuban uh, independence from Spain. You know, sort of, sort of like our, our, our Jefferson or Hamilton. Okay. Type of a thing. So she was she was born very very wealthy, but they they chose to leave it all behind, only because they didn't want their children to live under the communist ideal that there is no God, and everything that was going on. It was a tough decision. I mean, I look back and I'm like, man, would I made, would I have made that decision to leave all that money and all that affluence and come to the United States, not speaking the language, you know, and. Uh, and going to work as a janitor. So my dad became a hero. Absolutely. Um, um, so, and again, my ignorance on this, were the bank accounts frozen? Is a, is Are we to the point where like America is not ex- accepting Cuban currency? Is that why the money couldn't come along with you and well, your family? Well, it's interesting. My dad and some other very wealthy people <clears throat> during this time, the Cuban peso was worth more than the dollar, right? It was a, a dollar fifteen U.S. for one Cuban peso. Oh wow! But so my dad sent over six hundred thousand. This is nineteen sixty. Six hundred thousand. He exchanged six hundred thousand pesos to a gentleman that would give him a hundred and fifty when he came to the United States, or two hundred when he came to the United States. The problem was the guy robbed everybody. It was a scam. Oh. So. Eventually, the Cuban currency was worth, that currency was worth nothing. So, yeah, all the banks were confiscated, all the bank accounts. But that was probably uh, mid-60s, because we left in 66. Was it difficult to leave? Like, I've heard stories, you know, people jumping on rafts and, like, kind of just hoping to get somewhere versus, like, sneaking out on boats or, like, flying. How did you guys, or was it simple to get out? Well, at that time, my parents had applied to leave uh, in 1962, so or 61. It took five years for us to be able to be allowed to leave. We left on what was called the last freedom flight. So after that, it became very difficult. After we okay. left, uh, literally people had to, except for the different times, like when Jimmy Carter had the Mario boat lift and things like that, people had to escape in rafts or... If they were lucky to be able to go to a foreign country, you know, leave. And uh, in the United States, mostly those that came in rafts to the U.S. because, you know, the United States has got that Cubans have a protection that if a Cuban leaves Cuba and touches American soil, automatically he's a U.S. resident, which is, uh, I mean, I'm glad for me, but I think it's so sad. It's so, uh, you know, uh, unfair for so many immigrants. Yeah, that's other... Speaking of other immigrants, like say uh, uh, someone from Mexico, Guatemala, that they don't get those same kind of rights. Oh no, no, it's, it it becomes literally very, very difficult <clears throat> for a 
you know, for someone, you know, we talk about that we want legal migration, right? And I, and I want legal migration, of course. I believe anyone based the law should pay for it. But the problem is, here's the issue. If you can't come here legally because they make it so difficult for you and your family's hurting or you're afraid of your children being uh, turned into drug dealers or assassins <clears throat> or otherwise die, what are you going to do? I mean, if it was me, there's no wall big enough that's going to keep me back. Right. I'm going to feed my family because I feel that every human being has that number one obligation to take care of your family and to feed them. And, and what people don't realize is sad because we've given immigrants a bad word thinking that they're coming here to take our jobs. Listen, I had a company where we would employ 5,000 people, <clears throat> workers. And I'm telling you this right now, it is so sad to realize how difficult it was for us to find legal help, people willing to work. Right. You know, we have this entire workforce right now, younger workforce that, yeah, everybody wants to be Bill Gates and everybody wants to, you know, uh, be uh, one of the rich guys, Jeff Bezos. But who wants to cut the grass in the sun in Florida? Yeah. Who wants to pick the tomatoes? Who wants to pick all those vegetables that we are? I look around right now and I live in a very affluent community and I am looking around and the only, only workers that I see are probably undocumented. Right. Because they're willing to work like crazy. A lot of people think they don't pay taxes. They do. You know, fake social security. Uh, and it's it's a very complex problem. And, and it's something that I'm very eager to find out how this epidemic, uh, pandemic is going to do. Because <clears throat> I talk to people, that are builders, friends of mine, and they're like, we have no problem building the houses until it gets to the trades where we need American labor, where we can't do without uh, a plumber or an electrician. And he says, and the sad part is, I'm just don't want to work. They're like, they're happy staying behind and just collecting a check and right. not having to work. And it's, 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 uh, it's a very, very complex. Yeah. I've, for me, I've always thought of it and it might be a, a again, a stupid, simple way, but like, Part of why things are so cheap that are manufactured in China is basically like slave labor, right? Like factory workers that get paid nothing. That your cell phone is it is marked up for pure profit. It's not the labor that's driving up the cost of your cell phone. So what I don't understand is why don't people who why don't people who look at immigrants coming over see it almost in that way of it helps to keep costs down? Immigrants willing to do jobs help keep costs down if on, on a very basic level instead of trying to charge $25, 30 $40 an hour like that. And I've never understood why people don't adopt that mentality at a bare minimum aside from like the whole empathy of, yeah, they're trying to better their lives. They just want to have a future for their kids. Like I, I've never understood look, the, the argument against it. Listen, you're 100% right. Look, I think the president is right in saying that we need to bring uh, manufacturing, we need to bring all this stuff back to the United States. I, I mean, I'm all for that. I'm going to sit back. I was an entrepreneur. I ran a large company. I created a large company. I'm going to sit back and find out where are you going to get the labor force? Yeah. Where are you going to get the people to work? And, and are we Americans so proud of our heritage that we're willing to pay more yeah. for a product made here? Listen, I remember Sam Walton telling me one day, there will never be anything but American made out of Walmart. Try to find something American made out of Walmart now. Yeah. <laughs> because at the end of the day, we criticize all this, right? Yeah. And, and, and we're like, and we are very uh, nationalistic. But then what do we do? 
we create the market because we want things that are cheap. You know, we're not willing to pay that extra for that American dollar. Uh, and now we have a, a, even a worse situation where you have like Tesla, for example, making all their vehicles in the United States 100%, and the guy screaming that they got them locked down. So how's he going to do that? You know, where other countries, yeah, they'll have a lockdown for the citizen, but I'm going to tell you something. If there's factories that are bringing dollars, yeah, they don't give a damn. They're going to open. Right. Have so it's a very, immigration is a very complex thing. I, I just urge people before we vilify anybody, just look around and, and realize that, you know, there's people are human beings. And, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of them want to want to do what is right and, and, they're, and they're willing to be legal. Oh, yeah, 100%. Work harder than anybody. Yeah. And much like when your father was scammed, there's all sorts of shady lawyers out there who can promise documents. These people will be dishwashers or prep cooks or lawn care, and um, they'll work three shifts a day, you know, 18 hour, 20 hour days kind of a thing, and um, save up, scrap together a couple thousand dollars just to have it taken from them. And then they have no recourse. Oh, yeah. I, I don't want to tell you how many people uh, at the end of the day say, I'm not going to pay you. And if you say something, I'll call immigration. Yeah. And let me tell you, like, we had employees uh, years back when we first started our company in 98. We used, they used to buy social security numbers from the police department of no dead people. Are you, you serious? Know? And, and I told people this don't give me a fake number. If something ever happens, if something ever happens, I'll pay the penalty that I hired you and I knew you were undocumented and I had no choice. You know, my, a lot of my contracts were government contracts. Like I, we had a catastrophe, a disaster uh, restoration company, and we worked a lot of major catastrophes. And who do you think? For example, I'll give you a perfect example. Iowa. I only remember years back when Iowa flooded. I, um... I had a contract to, to clean up the uh, post office. Now, the basement of the post office was on the water, and the first floor had three feet of water. So we went in there, and I had 500 employees. Holy shit. The way our company worked, the way that we operated was <clears throat> I had 10 managers, and each manager could handle between 25 to 50 people, okay? And uh, we would go to the local market, and we would hire people. Usually, for example, we, if the post office flooded, these people don't have a job, and they're not going to get paid. Uh, I would try to hire as many of them as they wanted to work, you know, so that at least they're earning a living. A lot of people just didn't, didn't care. So lo and behold, we're going gun hole third day. And on the third day, uh, a representative of the mayor comes and said, listen, uh, it was all, all the major uh, restoration company had offices right downtown uh, Iowa, uh, Cedar Rapids. And uh, he comes and says, immigration is coming tomorrow. So just tell the temp agencies that. And we did that night when they picked up all their workers. The next day, I got three, three people out of the 500. <laughs> I got three legal people to show up. By 12 o'clock, my partner said to me, by 12 o'clock, he said, send them home. We'll do as much as we can. But I'm spending my whole time chasing these guys inside dumpsters. They're hiding, so they don't have to work. The, you're legal and, workers. The three legal workers, <laughs> you know, temp, temp workers. They were like professionals, man. It was like crazy. I never seen anything like that. <laughs> and uh, and that was that's the whole gist of it. We used to uh, do all the floods for Target. And I remember we had to be so creative in how we would have count. 
like numerous counts because they would come, sign, and they leave. I mean, literally, they were professional. So we would say, okay, uh, 11 o'clock, we will have a count in the men's department. You know, and, and just call it. I don't know where everybody reports to the men's department. And you'd find 10, 15 guys that had left. And, I, and then they'll come back like two hours later. I've been here all along. I said, get out of here, man. <laughs> it, it, it's crazy. So we, we, what we have in America is a workforce problem. This new generation, uh, really are the work habits to a certain extent, and I'm not talking about all, I'm not generalizing, but a lot of it doesn't want to work. A friend of mine bought a golf course in Tennessee, closed it down because he couldn't get one person to pass a drug test. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's a, it's a complex issue. Let me let me ask you, so Paperboy to a natural disaster restoration business owner, how, how does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, let me see. Uh, 40 years. So I'll, I'll tell you quickly, I don't know if you know much about my story. But uh, so we're very poor again, like I said. But my dad had those tremendous principles, work hard, you know, sacrifice, do whatever you can, be honest, <clears throat> your word is all that matters in this world, truth matters, and we work very, very hard, and, but I was, I was uh, laser focused on one goal, I wanted to, I wanted to reach the American dream that I thought back then, not the American dream of a World War II generation that, that was the real American dream where you work hard, uh, you know, you, you didn't like the war, but to serve was an honor. Uh, you have marriage problem, but, you know, it was an honor for you to be, but divorce was not an option. You'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. And they worked all their lives and sacrificed, paid their home, took a vacation, and then they lived a normal retirement life. One house, one car. Well, when I came to America, I saw the American dream. Oh, when I have this beautiful house, or if I have all these cards, if I have all the money in the world, if I can go out with gorgeous women, then I'm going to be happy. Well, I was laser focused on that. And I was an honor student, uh, worked very, very hard. At the age of 17, I became the youngest employee in the Federal Reserve Bank in Miami. I worked for the Federal Reserve Bank uh, wow. full-time, and I went to University of Miami full-time. And at the age of 20, I was asked by uh, my accounting professor as I was graduating, he's like, do you want to come work for me? And I'm like, Sure. He said, look, uh, he didn't speak Spanish in Miami. He said, I'll give you a secretary, office, all those things that you would want and just do my Spanish clients. And I'm like, yeah, what a great deal. And I did. Now, my goal was I was going to graduate at 20, which I did, and then I was going to go to law school. And by the time I was 24, I would graduate, and I had six years to become a millionaire. That's all that mattered to me. I didn't go to parties. I studied. I, I worked all day long, and I studied all night long. I slept four hours a day for many, many, many years and uh, didn't drink. All the alcohol I ever drank in my life was probably the size of a teacup. <laughs> uh, didn't smoke, never did drugs. I uh, had a high clearance at the bank. I mean, I was a nerd, but I was focused because to me, when I made all this money, I would be somebody. And until I did, I was a nobody. And being a nobody is not something I wanted to do. So <clears throat> at the age, uh, when I went to work for my accounting professor, uh, the first client I went to do was just a little grocery store. And uh, I, went, I would go there every Monday morning. And the first Monday I go, they had a little office in the back. And I went to the office. 
and I find this paper bag, and this is 1976. I find this paper bag, oh, 70, I'm sorry, take it back. This is about 1975. I find this paper bag at about $100,000. And I'm like, man, I can't believe this little store makes so much. <laughs> uh, I mean, $100,000 back then is a million dollars today. Right. Uh, come back next week, $75,000. Now, I'm so naive, I have no clue, no clue what's going on. She was like, man, something's weird. <laughs> and when I came the third week and it was 125 well, roughly that amount of money, I called the owner. And I'm like, look, man, I need to talk to you. I said, uh, there's a very basic accounting formula. If you buy a product for a dollar and you sell it for $3, that means you make $2 profit. So roughly, and that's, that's selling it 300% markup. Right. That we we made you you've given me in three weeks close to three hundred thousand dollars. That means you must have bought a hundred thousand dollars worth of product. But except the older receipts I add up don't even reach fourteen hundred dollars. Oh shit! <laughs> he's like, he looks at me. And he starts laughing and right in my face. He says, uh, "He says, man, we're not in the grocery business. We're drug dealers." Oh, and I was like, "What?" Now imagine <laughs> here's this nerd kid that never done nothing wrong in his life. All the time he finds out that I'm working for drug dealers, and uh, I'm like, well, immediately he said, look, we uh, have currency uh, restrictions in our country, and we're leaving this money here to, to, to make sure that we don't lose it. At that time, cocaine was not even on the DEA radar. You know, uh, cocaine was something that was for the rich and famous, the Hollywood celebrities. I mean, when you sell a kilo of cocaine for $70,000 and you can buy a house for twenty five, dollars you can imagine who your clients are. Wow. So anyway, uh, I was like, okay, that's fine. As long as I said to myself, as long as I don't break the law, I'm okay. And that's how in life we walk that thin line. You know, we justify and we say, well, as long as I don't do this, that'll be okay. As long as I don't do this. But that's how, life, that's how all our problems, I call it sin, and that's how anything uh, major in life starts, right? Yeah, you justify it. An addict should announce of heroin the first time, he'd be dead. Or an alcoholic, you know, drink a gallon of vodka, he'd die. But we start little by little, and that's how we end up crossing lines, that I call it. So they asked me to open foreign bank accounts for them. I knew how to do that. Uh, I said, how many do you want? And they said, we need three. And I was like, I'm just barely 20 years old by this time. And I'm like, you know, uh, Shoot, I didn't want to get involved with that, but I ended up saying, giving them a wild number, $10,000. And they're like, okay, open three for us. And I was like, what the heck, man? Anyway, all of a sudden, you know, I find myself uh, opening this foreign bank accounts for them. And I was making a lot of money. I mean, for the first year bank, I had a high salary at that time. And I think I was making $3.25 an hour, like 150 bucks a week. <laughs> and that was like big money because minimal wage was roughly 90, 90 cents, something like that. Okay. So anyway, I uh, I started doing that. And I tell people, you know, <clears throat> my life has been uh, three cataclysmic moments. You know, at the age of 10, leaving the United States, I mean, leaving Cuba and saying there is no God. God is who I'm going to make him out to be. Then at the age of 20, my world changes, and I remember going to a party, and I see this judge who used to give people tons of time for doing drugs, snorting cocaine. And I'm like, well, there is no God, and there is no morals. So 
ended up, I ended up uh, laundering at that time. Of, like it was like about we started by like twenty five million dollars a month uh, in the nineteen you know nineteen seventy six. Well, one thing led to the other, and they kept asking me if I would handle all operations in the United States for them because they knew I needed drugs. They knew I was a businessman, and uh, and I was clean cut and honest. And uh, before you know it, I mean, I depict the whole story in my book, Coming Clean. But before you know it, I was U.S. head of all operations by the time I turned 21 for a group that became known as the Medellin Drug Cartel. And at the age of 21, I was making between a million to three million dollars a month. And I had everything in the world. I had the most beautiful cars, mansions all over the place, dated the most beautiful women in America. And I was miserable. And I couldn't understand why. <clears throat> so all of a sudden, I get a, one of my uh, associates says, hey, the government of Bolivia wants to work out a deal with you. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. What's the deal? And they say, well, for every kilo you buy, They'll give you one on credit, and at the same time, they'll sell it to you for 10 versus 18 to 19 that you're paying for in Colombia. So I, I went and told my godfather, who was the founder of this group that became the, the cartel, and he didn't want nothing to do with it. He's like, no, you're making more money you ever dreamed of. Uh, we don't need to do that. We don't need to go there. Some of those people are savages. And I'm like, look, Manuel, nothing's going to happen to me, man. Because I felt invincible at this time. Yeah. It's really um, unbelievable how my life escalated. Here I went at the age of, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19. I was the American dream. 21, 22, 23, I became America's nightmare. And it was crossing one line. Line that I had defined I would never cross, you know? And uh, so I ended up going to Bolivia. I worked out the deal with them. Uh, short of the story is uh, I ended up coming on an airplane. Uh, with the cocaine to Colombia on the first load because I had a meeting with the General Somoza in Nicaragua and I couldn't get there in time. So I said, oh, i just get on the airplane because nothing's going to happen to me. And we got to Colombia. My godfather had a heart attack when he saw me in that airplane. And I'm like, again, Manuel, don't worry. Again, nothing. Nothing can happen to me. Well, leaving Colombia to Nicaragua, we crashed over the jungles uh, of Panama. And, uh, and I was arrested. Uh, when they found out who I was, DEA came and I was arrested and, and uh, posted in front of uh, all of that cocaine. And uh, two days later, <clears throat> the attorney general came and I looked at him. And I'm like, don't waste my time or your time. Just tell me how much money to buy the cocaine and how much money to get out of here. And he's like, cocaine, Noriega already sold it. $250,000 for you to leave. Me and the two pilots and my... Uh, the, uh, the guy that was in charge of all the transportation for me. And I'm like, I gave him a number, I said, use this code and you have the money here the next day. And he did. He come back to me three days later and he says, I got all set up. I'm sending you to uh, the city of Panama. They're going to rough you up a little bit because you need to make it look good in front of the DEA. But it's all set. I'm not fighting any charges and you're going to be deported to Costa Rica. So I'm like, perfect. So we went. I made the mistake of telling the pilots that, that I just worked out a deal with the attorney general. And uh, so when we got to the city of Panama, they took us in this room. I guess it was about like a conference room, 14 feet wide, uh, maybe 10 uh, long and 10 feet wide. 
and uh, nothing. There was no tables, nothing. The only thing they had was four chairs up against the wall. So we sat there, and all of a sudden, a door comes, and they bring in this Panamanian kid, maybe 100 pounds soaking wet, could have been older, 22, 23, handcuffed to his feet, butt naked uh, to his hands. They put him in the floor, and they stuck a broomstick up his rectum. <laughs> and uh, when they did that, he uh, blood just splattered all over the place. And uh, they looked at us, and they're like, we just caught him with five pounds of marijuana. And here we had 100, I don't know, 20, 50 kilos of cocaine. So the pilot immediately broke. And the worst part was they didn't only tell the DA and the, uh, the people questioning us that I was the biggest drug dealer in the U.S., but they just told them that I bribed the attorney general. And when they did that, they took me, the pilot went to the United States, and me and Harold, my co-defendant, they threw us in a dungeon, and for 20-some-odd days, they tortured us day and night to the point that I bled for five years every time I went to, to the bathroom to piss after that. And, uh, you know, I just didn't care. Uh, it was just, they would come day, they would come in the morning and they would stop beating us whenever we passed out. They put a cattle prod to our testicles. You jump so high. But I was convinced at that time that because I had this vision with my son. In my when I got arrested, he was only six months old. But in my vision, he was like ten, and he's coming, he's crying, he's like that. I said, "Why are you crying?" So he said, "Because my friend said my father is not a man." And at that moment, I said, "I'll die in this damn place, but I'm never going to let anyone insult my children that their father is not a man of honor." And uh, eventually, when my biggest fear and the only fear that I have was, I saw this guy across the cell from us he was licking the bars now we had no bathroom no toilet no nothing no food anything and uh i'm like we gotta do something i gotta get these people to kill me because what i don't want to do ever in my life is lose my mind so they i told the guards one time i threatened i said tell noriega that if you don't get us out of here we're gonna, i'm gonna get out one day and when i get out i'm gonna kill him i'm gonna kill all his family right in front of him and uh sooner sooner before you know it, two days later, he came. And I thought he was going to come and just beat, beat us again. But funny enough, he came laughing. He's like, you know, why are you threatening me? I'm not the one that told on you. You should threaten your guys. And then he said, by the way, you paid the wrong guy. So I'm like, all right, here goes my theory. You can do anything in Latin America. Buy your way out of anything. So I'm like, okay, how much to leave? How much, uh, you know, money for me to leave here? And he's like, uh, well, it's going to be... $250,000. I'm like, is that the going price in Panama for one, two, three, four people? <laughs> and he's like, so I'm like, I give him, he'll go to the same routine, you know? Oh, shit. I said, I, I said, here's the number. Three days later, he came in to release us and uh, they took us to the airport. And at the airport, we're waiting for a flight to Costa Rica and they ended up. Uh, Interpol came and grabbed us like a sack of potatoes threw us in an airplane going to Miami. And uh, when we got to Miami, I was charged with heading the largest drug conspiracy in the history of America. <laughs> I was uh, given a $5 million bond, and I had just turned 23 years old. So 
there uh, at the beginning of, of my career, went to prison, had a blast in prison. I had a lot of money and lived just as good as I live on the street. I just couldn't go home. I got out after five years. I was given the largest sentence they could give me, which was 15 years, conspiracy to import. And uh, I got out and went back to the same thing. But I went back to the same thing because I was sort of like out of uh, anger, out of the fact that they kidnapped me in a foreign country and made up charges. I mean, I was guilty of dealing drugs. Get me, don't get me wrong, but I was not guilty where I was charged. I was charged in Macon, Georgia, where I'd never been in my life. So I was angry at that and sort of like proved to myself that I can go back. And I did. But then the world started to change and started to get violent. And, uh, and then my mother knew by now that I was a drug dealer. She didn't know before. And she kept telling me, son, what you're doing doesn't please God. Son, what you're doing doesn't please God. You know, and this is a lesson that if, if there's any parent of, of your listeners listening, it's a really important lesson. I used to tell people my mother was knew how to do perfectly tough and love and what i mean by that is two different things not tough love one item but she was tough she didn't wait never took a dollar from me lived in the same house they lived that they bought with their money working in america never quit telling me that i was doing what's wrong destroying it but the minute she stopped that she would say son what do you want to eat today she showed me love and that's really important because i lost my compass i lost my bearing but I knew what true north was. And eventually, when I decided to walk away, I knew where to go back to. So, you know, in 1987, uh, through a series of, of events, one of them is my little daughter, uh, my ex-wife dropped my daughter off at my ranch where I was living. And uh, in the middle of the night, she started knocking, trying to get in the room. And she was uh, barely... This was about a year and a half old and uh, two years old. And she was like, you're saying, Daddy Crystal, Daddy Crystal. And I couldn't open the door. I felt so filthy and I felt uh, that if I would open the door, I would contaminate her. Here's the only thing in my life that was sacred. And here I am, you know, I can't open the door. So I was partying with some Hollywood celebrity. I chased him out the window. And uh, eventually when my daughter, uh, I felt she had, you know, gotten quiet. I had gone underneath my sheets. I was shivering and for a person that people said ice ran through his veins uh i ended up like i didn't know what was going on in my life when i opened the door she was about the floor and that day i made the decision i'm done i'm gonna walk away from that i'm gonna change my life and uh i didn't know what change meant all i knew was if i'm going north i'm gonna go south if i'm going east i'm gonna go west and i moved out of miami and moved to my ranch uh lived in a gorgeous, had a gorgeous uh, cattle operation. And I went to live in my ranch and I hired this guy <laughs> to come teach me karate. And the first day that he comes, he says, uh, I'm going to teach you about the sword. And I'm like, I start thinking, I'm like, I'm like, wow, man, I love that. This guy is like, you know, I'm not going to have to, I've done karate before. And like, I'm not, we don't want to waste time kicking and all that. We're going to go straight to our weapons, you know? So I was really, really excited. And then he turns around and pulls out a Bible. Man, I was so mad. I raised. <laughs> I was a diehard atheist. And I'm like, dude, I'm paying you a lot of money to teach me karate. And I don't believe in that sword. I don't believe in what that book talks about. So tomorrow, why don't you bring the real sword? 
and leave that stupid thing home. And he was the first man that got within two feet of me, so he wasn't very good at social distancing. And uh, <laughs> he says to me, young man, what I got to give you, you got no money to pay. Now, I know here's a guy who's a seven-degree black belt, and the first thing he's going to do is begin to introduce Jesus into me by kicking him, and I'm going to pay for it. I'm like, no, nah, dude, don't, don't get excited, man. You know, when the, while the steam room is heating up, waste your time. And uh, he talked to me for three years, three years. And uh, I just, uh, one day when my divorce was final, so people say, what, what did he do to change your life? And I'm like, what did he say? I said, well, honestly, I don't know what he said because I was, every time he read that book, I was just getting over the two hours of butt whooping he had given me. So I was just, <laughs> <clears throat> the least thing I was doing is thinking about what the hell he has. So anyway, uh, after three years, uh, my divorce was final from my ex-wife. And uh, I saw my little daughter crying as she was leaving. And I was just so devastated. And I went into my room, July 1st, 1990. I remember clearly today. And I got on the phone and I'm like, you know, Jesus, first of all, I don't think you're real. I don't think you exist, number one. Number two, if you are, you're looking at me and you're saying, George, you're so bad, I don't want you here. But number three, if what that man has, because, see, I kept asking him. See, the beauty about it, he never asked me to convert or, you know, give my life to Christ, none of that stuff. To a great extent, what happened is he began to show me a man that lived in what I consider a little bitty, nothing world compared to my world and he was full of happiness and joy he'd been married to the same woman for 25 years and loved her and i had all the supermodels and i hated them and i just couldn't understand it and all he would say is you know i i'm like tim what makes you so happy i mean you i mean i look look i have a million dollars with the cars and you got some beat up old car and he's like i have an intimate relationship with christ i'm like what the hell does that mean <laughs> you know i don't i can't have a relationship with people that i that around me that would die for me and how am I going to have a relationship with someone that I don't even exist or even phantom and uh, but it was everything that I sold this man how he lived and that's a message for a lot of people you know and I tell people a lot of people say to me well you're a Christian author and a Christian writer I said no I'm not I'm an author I'm a speaker I'm a YouTuber that happens to be a very committed Christian so what is my mission in life? I don't try to tell people, convert, do this or that. No. Right. I just tell my story about my life, how I was the most miserable human being in the world with millions and millions of dollars and everything the world tells you is going to make you happy. And I was miserable. And then I fell in love with a Jewish carpenter <laughs> and, uh, that whose, whose love transformed my life. And it's just that simple for me. So when I have people say, who do you talk to? I said, I don't. I don't care who I talk to. I don't care if they're Christian, atheist, Muslim, you know, Jehovah's Witness. I don't care if they're straight, gay, trisexual. I don't care anything. Right. All I care is, listen, I want to tell you about this Jewish carpenter that changed my life, my story. So if the shoe fits, wear it. If not, buy another pair of shoes. You know? <laughs> That's how I look at the world. Very, very simple. Because in, and in today's world, man, do we need more love. Yeah, we got too much hatred in this world, man. It's, yeah. it's so horrific, Sean. No, I. Um, 
I, I ended up shortly uh, after I made that, that uh, I had that conversation with this God I didn't know it existed. Three months later, I get arrested. And I get arrested because the government just couldn't stand that I was living this multimillionaire life on drug money. So I get taken to Mobile, Alabama, <clears throat> and uh, in essence, they, their uh, position was lots of money, little time, little money, lots of time. So I said, do you know how much I got? And a door opened, four agents came, and they knew how much toilet paper I consumed. Oh, wow. So for four years, they had been uh, doing this forensic accounting on me. And I remember saying to myself, if this unknown God or this person that I'm putting my faith to change my heart. I have no clue about that. One thing I can continue to do in my life is lying. So even though my attorney says I'm a, I can, I can beat the case because their number one witness ended up crashing in the fog the day before, still smuggling drugs. And, you know, so they had no, they didn't have a witness against me, he says. But I looked at him like, Alan, I can't go in there and keep lying, man. You know, I can't fight these people the rest of my life. I, you know, he was, I know him for 20 of my year, and he was Jewish. And I'm like, uh, I said, you know what's funny? Uh, here you are, a good Jew. Tell me I'm going home. And I know you. I love you. And I give him my life to this other Jew. And he ain't saying nothing, man. So <laughs> I don't know what, but I just got to, if my life is going to change, I just got to come clean. And I thank God I didn't have to testify against anyone because tax limitations run out. Uh, at that time, so, but I forfeited everything. I went into a cell without a dollar to buy a candy uh, bar. I tell people, you know how long it go, it make how long it takes for you to go from being a multimillionaire and not to having a dollar to buy a candy bar? About three minutes. That's how long it took me to sign over all my properties to the government. God. And uh, and I was facing a long time in prison, but I went in there and I had faith that. Uh, that my life was going to be okay. And I remember laying in this cell right after I go handed over all my assets. I mean, three hours earlier, I was a multimillionaire. And, and at that moment, I didn't have nothing to buy a candy bar, a dollar to buy a candy bar. And uh, I saw this in, in my cell. I saw this little pocket, uh, like, a sheet of, like a, a sheet out of a pocket Bible. And it said, rejoice at the confiscation of your goods. I got greater riches for you in heaven. I'm like, I have no clue what any of that means. My world literally had ended. But I decided that, and it's something that I do today a lot about mindset. You know, I'm writing a journal right now uh, because my whole mission is to help people. And I, and I say, it, it's not how you look at the world that's important. It's through what lens you look at the world. So at that moment, I said to myself, I can do the time or I can let the time do me. I can either sleep 12 hours a day and sleep half of my sentence away as prisoners believe, or I can make something of my life. So I went back to school, got another bachelor's. I did half of my master's from Wheaton College, got released, finished my master's at Wheaton, met the most amazing woman in the world, been married to for 24 years, my wife, Sue, and uh, ended up going to get a PhD and became one of five Hispanics with a PhD in uh, New Testament. So I was highly recruited by every university to teach. And uh, my dad died and I was convicted that he, I was missing him so much. He was my best friend, he was my hero. Never gave me anything material. 
to give me his love and his presence that I told my wife, we're going to move to Georgia. I need to be a full-time dad to my three children from a prior marriage. So I didn't know what we we're going to do. And we started a company in the basement of our house. And in 10 years, I built it into a multi-million dollar national, international company. Then uh, 10 years later, in, 19, in 2012, I uh, ended up retiring and saying, you know, if a man can't tell when enough is enough, <laughs> he's drive them. So I dedicate the rest of my life to doing what I do now. So that's how I went from being a paper boy to being a millionaire at the age of 64 today. Jesus. So now that was long-winded. So I'm no, it was yeah, it. it, it but there's the whole story. The, I mean, the abbreviated story. The rest of it you can read it in the book Coming Clean. Can I ask, going back because there, there's just so much that I, again, I love talking to people who make me feel ignorant because they make me think and they help me to gain perspective. So if I ask a stupid question, you can feel free to make fun of me um, <laughs> and then uh, try to answer it. Uh, so you start off originally being like in charge of the books and laundering money. How do you go from the accountant aspect to the sell uh, the, the selling of the drugs? Or is it just like you're a business manager? You're like just pushing that product wholesale kind of a thing. Right. So what happened is, and I just gave you like a really ballpark, uh, you know, summation of what really happened in detail. Uh, I started opening those four bank accounts. So the gentleman that I started opening one day asked me if I wanted to meet his partner. And his partner was a guy named Emmanuel Garces, who was the guy that founded, uh, it was the head of that organization that became the Medellin Drug Cartel. And uh, so a businessman, a very, very committed Christian, uh, and very interesting, and we say that, and we say drug dealers and that, well, go back, 76. Again, it's like saying that the Kennedys are not Catholic because they sold alcohol. You know, right. we didn't think we're doing anything wrong. So I, I, he comes to the United States and he wants to open a uh, banana distribution. He owned banana fields in Colombia. I, I mean, the guy owned everything in Colombia, emerald mines. He owned a, a, a charcoal mine, coal mine, uh, largest construction company. So he asked me if I wanted to run the company. Now, all along, I'm thinking that this company is going to be a legitimate to import bananas. In the back of their mind, they wanted to import cocaine inside the banana ship. Uh. So anyway, but I did. I opened the company for them. We bought a ship and we were remodeling the ship. And I got to know them really well. And all along, they started kidding. I mean, they're like, so I was in California remodeling the ship. And I made, I meet this guy who's doing the refrigeration. And he says to me, after we became pretty good friends, he was only about a couple years older than me, but he had a softball team and I was a really great ball player. So I was there living by, in Stockton by myself inside this, watching the uh, remodeling of this, you know, freight uh, ship and uh, became good friends. And he kept kidding me that, hey, I know this is going to be a, a boat for cocaine. I know it's going to be. And I was like, man, you're out of your mind. Do you think I'm going to put my name in something that's going to be for drugs? But he kept at it. And I made that comment one time to Manuel. And they're like, well, do you realize how much money you can make? If you are, you know, if you handle our drug distribution, and I'm like, I'm saying, look, I don't even know what cocaine looks like. 
I didn't know what drugs looked like. I was have I don't had no problem with the money because there was no money laundering laws. I had no problem with running the ship company because I thought it was gonna be legitimate. So I just didn't want to get involved in any of that. But they kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And one day I'm like, man, how am I gonna get rid of this guy? <laughs> that really, you know, it's like when someone just keeps yeah nabbing at you, and nagging and nagging. Yeah, it happened to Samson. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I'm like. Oh, I got a great idea. So I, now at this time, think about this. I'm 21 years old. If you look in the dictionary for a picture of a nerd, that was me. I had braces. If you look at the pictures in my book, you, you, you're like impossible. So in one of my trips, I go over there. And just as they ended up saying the same thing again, I'm like, look, I'll make you a deal. And, and I thought that this was going to get me out of it. Fine. I'll handle all your operations in the U.S., but you're going to make me equal partner. There were four of them. You're going to make me equal partner, and you got to put up my capital because I ain't got a pot to piss in. Now, at that time, to bring a load of 200 kilos, for example, is $4 million. So at, at cost, you know, you're paying, you know, uh, $20,000 a kilo. So anyway, long story, I'm like, okay, so if we're doing that, divided by five, that means, you know, $80,000 or $800,000, I'm sorry. Right. So I'm like, what the hell am I going to get that money? I mean, of course, they're going to tell me I'm crazy. They're going to look at me and say, listen, kid, you're a punk kid. And then we're going to kick my butt all the way back to the United States. And I was going to be the happiest man in the world. I was getting rid of these people once and for all. So I went to my hotel and I was like very, very excited. You know, I I had come up with a genius plan. Because they looked at me. Well, Manuel looked at me. He was the only guy there. And he's like, he looks at me and very serious said, well, I got to talk to my partners, you know? And I'm like, of course you got to talk to your partner. You know, this is not an easy decision. So lo and behold, I go to the hotel and I'm done, man. They're never going to bother me anymore. I can go about this, this uh, banana business and it was, it was going to make a lot of money, the banana business. So the next morning when they sent the chauffeur thing with the airport, the chauffeur came over and said, well, uh, you know, Don Manuel wants to see you in his office. I'm like, okay, what's the forgotten stuff? I go there. And when I go there, all the partners were there. And literally, and they were like stoic. And I'm like, holy cow, man. They're so insulted. They're going to shoot me right here and then. You know, I'm, I'm, my life is over with. Why did I make that stupid ass offer? What the hell am I thinking about? And they looked at me and they're like, we really thought about it. And fine. Your profits on the first loads will hold to capitalize you. But you become U.S. head of all operations and we'll put up the initial capital for you. And I'm like, are you sure? You know, I don't know anything about this. No, I think that you're a quick learner. And I'm saying to myself, I, I literally peed on myself. I'm like, what the hell did I do? I said, I don't know what freaking cocaine looks like. It could be talcum powder to me be the same. Right. I don't know how you sell it. How do you bring it in? How do you move the money? How do you distribute it? On and on and on and on. But <clears throat> one of the things, uh, going back to this journal that I'm writing that I call the, the Narco Mindset Journal, one of the principles I talk about is proactive. I was so proactive in life that I literally broke down every, every area of a smuggling operation to minute details. And uh, before you know it, you know, in six months, we're doing, started with doing 200 kilos, 300, 500. Within a year, we're doing anywhere between 500 to 1,000. And according to the government, 
we were bringing in 85% of all that cocaine that came into America. And uh, I started making millions of dollars a month, but I was miserable. So that's how you go. And again, you cross a line, right? You know, yeah. I, I crossed that first line of, okay, I'm willing to open foreign bank accounts for them. I know the money's illegal. Sure, there's no money laundering laws, but it doesn't take a, make it any less that I'm hiding money for criminals, right? Yeah. So that's how it went from one thing to the other. Man, so just because like this natural detail-oriented personality trait, you kind of just figured out how to become an ultimate distributor. You know, the thing about it in my life, well, first of all, we were some of the beginning. In my life, I've always, <clears throat> and how I built a company after that, my wife always gets a kick out of it because <laughs> I thought, I don't know what the word I can't mean means. Uh -huh. I don't, in my dictionary, the word I can't or I cannot doesn't exist. <clears throat> my theory is if someone has done something, I can do it too. Mm. I mean, all I might have to do is work three times as hard, take longer, but I can. Right. You know, so that was the, the one of the things with me. So it was, a, you know, it's like uh, back then also like I built a, how we used to clean up the Pentagon or clean up huge government facilities. People say, well, how do you figure out what that's going to be? I said, it's like eating an elephant. You, how you eat an elephant? A bite at a time. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everything down into smaller components. Yeah. You know? And, and I mean, at the beginning, I had help that they were already bringing in drugs. Right? So the route, the original routes they had, I ended up, that guy Mel in California ended up becoming my buyer when I finally told him, yeah, we are drug dealers. And, uh, now that I knew that I was in it, and they ended up becoming our biggest distributors. So it just goes from one thing to the other. I mean, thing in life escalate, you know, and I, like I tell, uh, the first time I cheated on my first wife, I couldn't sleep for a week. The second time I couldn't sleep for three days. The third time I slept like a baby. And that's how, how we are when we cross lines, when we do things that we say we're never going to do, and how things escalate from one thing to the other, you know? Yeah. How are you managing, do you think it's just youthful ignorance at the age of 21, 22, that you're feeling so safe and secure to hop on planes in countries and talk to these big time people? Because, and again, I, I, ignorant as hell, but everything I've heard about drug cartels in foreign countries is it, like you said, savages, ruthless. Yeah, it's very different now than it was in the 70s though. Okay. Uh, especially in Colombia. It was like, my godfather used to say, if you need a gun to deal with someone, you don't need to be dealing with that person. Oh, so that was very, very different. It was, you know, we thought we were the bootlegs, and we used to tell people we're the Kennedys of the 20th century. You know, they smuggle uh, alcohol, we're smuggling cocaine. We're not hurting anyone. This is for the bridge and payment. That's why when I got out of prison in '84, I changed because I saw the world had drastically changed. But what ended up happening is a good question that you asked because when I went and met with the Bolivian people, uh, at one time they they ended up between us, not in a, in a, how would I say, well, for example, on the first load, they told us they would give us two kilos, I mean, a kilo of credit for every kilo we bought. But when we went to pick up the first load, all they had was what I had bought. So I felt betrayal. And I remember looking at this guy who had overthrown government, and I said, look, if you screw me again, I'm going to kill you. Oh. And I'm, I'm 23 years old, you know, and this guy looks at me, 
my my uh, right hand man who's sitting next to me literally peed in his pants. And this guy looked at me and said, "Man, you got the biggest set of testicles. You got to be the biggest idiot in the world." But I like you. And uh, what ends up happening is what called the God complex. Oh, uh, okay. You know, we we do this to athletes. We do this to rich people. We do this to a lot of uh, people. And a lot of people looked at me and they weren't like my mother. They thought I was the greatest thing in the world, you know, because I lived this lavish lifestyle that very few dream of. I had private jets, yachts, million dollars worth of cars. And instead of telling me, hey, what you're doing is wrong, and you're a drug dealer, they thought I was, made me feel like I was God. Right. And you get away with something one time, right? It's like the worst thing can ever happen to any human being is to go to Vegas and win the first time. Worst <laughs> thing ever. Because you think you're going to win again. And those buildings were not built losing money. So that's a little tip for uh, those that want to gamble. Yeah. But yeah. And, and that's how it is with everything, right? We get away with something one time and then we just feel like invincible, that nothing can happen to us. So do you, what was the plane crash an actual accident or did someone like shoot it? Was there some sort of sabotage on it with the intent no, no. to... When we left, when we left uh, uh, Colombia, we lost the first alternator. And then, because those planes would have a bladder inside, right? It's like a plastic, like a rubber fuel tank. And then uh, they were piped so that you can get fuel to the wings. And that's how we give you extra distance to be able to come all the way to the United States. So one alternator failed. <clears throat> and again, feeling invincible, instead of turning around and going back to the strip, which was only 30 miles away, I mean, 30 minutes away, we ended up like, ah, don't worry, we'll make it on one alternator. And then the second alternator failed over Panama. We couldn't get the fuel out of the inside the airplane to the wing tanks. And at 3,000 feet, we went down. There's a picture of it in my book where you literally see the plane at an angle stuck in the ground. We had to j open the door, jump out of the door uh, to get out. So that's how we uh, lost the plane. And then with the plane, and I guess I'm trying to figure out when you had said you're speaking to the attorney general, you're speaking to the attorney general of Panama, offering him the yeah. money? Yeah, Panama. <clears throat> when we got arrested, <clears throat> the attorney general came. And, uh, and, and I knew it because we had a lot of influence. You know, we were spending a million dollars in bribery a month during this time. So we have people paid off. In countries, we have presidents paid off. We had a lot of corruption that we bought. So, yeah, I'm speaking to the attorney general, and I knew that he would come, and I knew that I could buy my way out, you know. And uh, had I not told the pilot that I had bribed the attorney general, uh, I would have got out. But when they ended up saying that I had bribed the attorney general in front of the DEA, you can imagine what that happened. And th they wanted to then lock you up and go with the torture because they were hoping to get more money or hoping to make an example of you because you thought, again, you had this like God complex and they're like, who's is this guy to think that he can just do whatever he wants? No, what happened is at this time is when they, they uh, went to torture us is now the DA is involved and they wanted to know about Manuel, they wanted to know about my associates. Oh, okay. And that, was, and that was the whole thing. And I was going to die there before I talked, you know, because to me, all that, all that a man has, you know, when we're little, my dad used to say, son, and I mean, 
Sean, like a broken record. Son, uh, in life, you got no control whether you're sick or healthy. Son, you have no control whether you're dead or alive. Son, you have no control whether you're rich or poor. I'm like, well, that one I figured out. <laughs> the only thing in this world that you have absolute control of is your word. Mm. So don't ever, ever break your word. And I, and that's how I lived. That's how I lived my whole life. I wasn't going to break my word. I was going to die in that jail. I couldn't care less. But I wasn't going to let no one ever tell my kids that their father was not a man. Gotcha. <clears throat> Jesus, man. And then, so it... <laughs> The conversation where you're trying to get, basically trying to get killed by lipping off about Noriega is almost similar to you trying to get out of the banana deal where you're like, I'm just going to say something outrageous and there's no way it's accepted. And it actually oh, yeah. worked out for you. And the funny thing is I ran, I, I ran into Noriega in the U.S. when he was in prison. When the United States went and brought him to the United States, he was in a cell in the same prison where I was. <laughs> and uh, and I ran into him, and he was he had this orange suit. I called it a monkey suit, just like I did. And uh, I'm like, General, you remember me? He didn't even acknowledge, you know. And I was talking to the bars, and I'm like, Man, you really don't look as tough as you did back then in the Modelo, which was the name of the jail. But you know, I don't blame Noriega. I mean, I think in reality, uh, I blame the pilots that put the attorney general in a bad position where uh, the DA now had a lot. Because at, at this time, remember, the interesting thing is Noriega was working for the U.S. United States DEA agency, and he was also working for the cartels. He was double-dipping. That's why the United States went and got him. You know, he was crooked as crooked can ever be. Did, but, not, did not know that. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot the world doesn't know. And I mean, you know, it's, it's corruption is horrific, you know. Uh, in Latin America, I call it corruption, right? We bought presidents and all that. In the United States, I call it lobbying. <laughs> that's a great point. Same thing, right? right? The only way we're ever going to get a government that's going to uh, pass laws for the people that really care about the people instead of the corruption that we have today is uh, put term limits and yeah. let the federal government pay for the election. Everybody gets the same amount of money. But... As long as it costs a billion dollars to run for president of the United States, I'm going to tell you who's going to run America, pharma, and the war industrial complex, period. Right. I mean, we we talk about this war on drugs, Sean, the biggest joke in the world. Think about it. The war on drugs, we've been fighting this thing for 30, 40 years now, and where are we at? Cocaine is only 10% of all the drug overdoses in America. I mean, listen, one overdose is too many, but it's 10% of them. And we spend all these billions to fight this war on drugs, whereas opioids is 60%. And they're legal. (laughs) Manufactured right here in America. Do you ever see anybody talk about it? Like right now we're talking about, uh, I don't know if this might be controversial with you or not, but I think that this whole lockdown of our nation, I think is the biggest joke. I think it uh, is the most horrific crime created in America. And let me explain one life that dies is too many. But I know a lot of people, I know a lot of hospital administrators that will tell you that everything has been classified as COVID-19 because the government made the mistake of giving money to hospitals, which they should never give a, mo- a penny to a damn hospital. They make too freaking much money as it is. You know, give money to hospitals so they classify everything like that. But here's the deal. 
Uh, and again, yeah, people are going to die. So we understand that. But here's what I get at. Why are we not so alarmed? Look at the world stop. And we got 73,000, let's say 100,000 die in America. Okay. And again, let me clarify, one life is too many. Why are we not worried about the 50,000 to 100,000 drug overdoses every year? No, I don't see nobody, in, I don't think people locked in their house worried about that. I've, Why are we worried about the suicides? Yeah, I, I've actually said the same thing, like even something as car accidents. I think more people have died in car accidents than they have with COVID-19 deaths. And that is with hospitals incentivized through money to classify people who die as they died of COVID versus cancer or a lung or, or a respiratory issue that maybe COVID enhanced, but the respiratory issue is going to happen anyway. So Listen, I, my, I have a very close friend, close friend who's a director of a large chain of hospitals. <clears throat> been a friend of mine for many, many years, said to me, whatever number you see up there, divide that by three. And one third is probably the right number. And uh, I'm like, you know, but again, one is too many, but I, I was about to talk about the accident. Exactly. 50,000 people drive, die of a drunk driver hitting them, killing yeah. them. Nobody's staying home. Everybody's still driving, right? Yeah. And going to bars oh. and, and driving oh. down roads where you're likely to be hit by a drunk driver, which is very similar to going into a crowd where you are likely to catch COVID. Exactly. So the thing about it is, we, 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 it's fine. They told, they told, told us to uh, wash our hands, keep uh, you know, social distance, yeah. et cetera. But the media, the media has become the worst in God's earth. I mean, the media is horrible to begin with. Yeah. You know, because all, all the media cares, if it bleeds, it reads. Yeah. So they have made something so horrific out of this, out of this whole thing that it's got our whole nation in fear. Yeah, and, uh, and listen, there's people, so I, I, people say to me, well, don't you care about health over the economy? I said, look, first of all, let me say this. <clears throat> Isolation for me, quarantine for me, a month, two, three, four, insignificant. I spent 10 years in quarantine and I didn't have <laughs> Netflix. I didn't have bourbon. I didn't have sex. So now this is nothing. Right. But to so many people, their, the, their health, is the economy. Yeah. How about 40% of our children have been raised by a single mom? What if they want to work? Those that even have the ability to have a job, they can go to work. Who's going to take care of their children? Yeah. So if you're rich, it's nice to say that. <clears throat> so what's my solution? Real simple. If you're afraid, stay home. Right. If you're at risk, stay home. Don't lock up the rest of the nation. It's horrific. Yeah, yeah, a lot I... of people are being destroyed. People have worked all their life to build a business. It's gone. You know, uh, many, many, many jobs are never going to return. Many companies will never reopen again. So the tragic, and, and we're not even talking about that the right now it's estimated that twice as many people are committing suicide because it's very interesting. Guess what's not locked uh, up? Guess what's not on quarantine? Big pharma. So <laughs> now they'll get the drugs to your house. So right. you can go ahead and just overdose in your house. Mental illness that we're going to deal with that America has no idea about and doesn't even want to deal with it. It's horrific. Marriages that are going to, number one cause of divorce is what? Uh, economics. Marriages yeah. that are going to be, happy, divorces that are going to be destroyed. Marriages destroyed, divorces happening. Horrific. Suicide. They said the, all the different hotlines said that for every call they used to receive, they're getting 10 now. 
So we're not even talking about any of that. So yeah, we have all the rich, rich people saying, you know, in the news, all the nice people that make all that money. Chris Cuomo, I mean, he's got a nice haircut. I wonder where he got that because he's supposed to be home and not the salon not closed. But yeah, right. Haircut. It's all hypocrisy, man. It's all hypocrisy. And uh, you know, we're not a nation of fear. And then for me, as a Christian, I don't give a darn. I listen. I told this to I told this to a friend of mine the other day. If I if I die because of this virus, the first thing I'm going to do when I get up to heaven is have a serious conversation with Jesus over some of that good wine he made. <laughs> Could you have done better than that? I've been shot out 28 times and never had a scratch. I fell off an airplane. I was tortured. I've gone through hell and I'm alive and you took me with a virus? Come on, man. <laughs> it's got to be a little more romantic than that. Oh. Yeah, I <laughs> I so agree that well, the media is incentivized through advertising to keep this pandemic up because their audience is locked in. You know, they, they'll never get... I've compared it to like when the weather, when there's a hurricane coming and the weather channel just hypes it up for days. Cause they're like, we're not going to get these ratings again. And I don't think people look at the money aspect to understand why information's coming out like they should. And it's political, right? Yeah. Look, I've been, a, I've been a Republican. <clears throat> I was a Republican all my life. You know, I, I, because I believe not in a Republican, politician, I believe in small government, I believe in family values, I believe, etc. <clears throat> but here's the thing, it's interesting that most of the states are locked up are democratic states. Yeah. And and those are the people that that are supposed to be the party that worries about the people, the party the union, the party that cares about workers. But this has become a political issue. I didn't vote for this president, <clears throat> period. And I didn't vote for the candidate either. Because to me, you know, I, I just believe in certain different values of a human. I don't judge anyone. God knows I was the worst ever. But he is my president now, man. And I got to pray for him. Right. And number one, if he succeeds, I succeed. So yeah. what type of a media wants him to fail? There's a lot of people in the media to do. Yeah. And it's perfect, man, because they don't care about American lives. Yeah. They just care about a political agenda. It's all about power. Right. Now, now I understand. Power is addictive, buddy. Trust me. I can tell you how addictive it is, but you got to care for the people, man. <clears throat> and they got to open up and you're going to see that it's not, that is nothing, no different than we've had. I mean, we had 80,000 people died of the flu Yeah. every year. So, you know? Yeah. And I, I've always tried to look at it percentage wise. And like when you break down the numbers to the actual percent of the population, you're, you're, it, it's minuscule. And again, like, like you've said several times, like one death is one too many, but people die from all sorts of things all the time. Exactly. And you know, and we thought we have to have more testing, more testing. Okay. So I, I'm not that smart, but I have a brain to, you know, to things logically. Well, really. And what does that going to do? Because does it, if you get tested, does that mean that, you're never going to have it again if you don't have it. I know. Or can you be negative today and positive get it tomorrow? tomorrow? Yeah, right. Because they said it can stay in you for what four or five days for your symptoms and all. I the the interesting thing now is the shift in the states between, hey, we're worried that we're going to overwhelm the medical system to, hey, now we're going to wait till we have a vaccine. Yeah, and, yeah. I'm going to tell you what this director said. So I'm going to tell you Florida. So this director said that they uh had a call from the CDC in March, 
and they're like, uh, we get ready, we're gonna have 460,000 hospitalizations. And uh, it's gonna be horrific. And they're like, well, that's nice. The entire state of Florida only has 89,000 beds. So get the president to come build us all this uh, bed in this convention center. And you're gonna need X amount of respirators, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the system is gonna collapse. Well, in that month, instead of that 460,000 hospitalization, only 2,111 happened. So that that's a fact. And the ventilator, people were paying, hospital paying two and three times more for ventilators that are sitting still in a box in some warehouse because they're not even using the ventilators that they have. Wow. So it's all a, a, a game to panic people. And I tell people, fear not, man. Love more. If you believe in God, then trust God. Right. If you don't believe in God, then just believe that this too shall pass. And then one day, the best thing that you can do is turn the news off, turn the TV. Listen, the news television told me the only thing I needed to know. Wash my hands, uh, keep separate. If I'm at risk, you know, be at risk. One thing to learn is we, we should take better uh, care of ourselves because this friend of mine was telling me that 80% of all their deaths are morbid obesity and people I with three pre-existing conditions. I heard so, that there was a, um, and I don't remember his name, but he was on the Joe Rogan podcast when COVID, it had to be in March. So it's like two months ago. And he's, his whole focus, it's not Dr. Fauci, but his whole focus has been infectious, contagious diseases, like from SARS, everything. And he said that he called it early on. He said, what's going to happen is this thing's going to blow up in the South because in the South, there is such a high rate of obesity it, the virus is just going to destroy those people who haven't been taking care of their bodies, who don't eat right, who don't exercise regularly. And you've got to do that in order to, you got to keep your body strong to fight off viruses. And, and it could be any virus. Yeah, exactly. And, and this, listen, this is going to be the new norm, right? This is just the world that we live in right now. So we better start getting used to the fact that, Hey, you know what? Uh, take care of your body. Uh, yeah, look, Take a handkerchief with you and don't hold handrails and stuff like that because this virus is all over them. Right. And this is not going to be the only virus. This this uh, ship has not sailed yet. You know, it's going to happen over and over again. And uh, we just got to learn that, hey, this is the new norm. And at the same time, the way I look at it is if you are afraid of getting contaminated, stay home. There's not a law saying people got to leave their house. But if you're not, we got to go back to life. We got to open up business and we are resilient. Yeah. You know, we've survived this. We'll survive more. And trust in that money, money, power influence that's going to get some pharmaceutical out there to come up with something quick because they're afraid that the Chinese already have something. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, that, that's it, right? Because they, they got a head start or they're just maybe they're not as constrained by laws as our country is so they can test differently or whatnot. Um, but yeah, if you, whoever, whoever comes up with the virus of this, their stock's going to fucking triple quadruple. I mean, it's going to, oh, yeah. it's going to rock it in a heartbeat, man. It's going to be like, and they're talking about that. The Chinese already have it. Yeah. No, and I, I mean, I, I'm not, I won't be surprised, you know? Yeah. So, Hey, I'm going to live life. I can live in fear. That's no way to live. You know, for me, uh, as a Christian, if I live, I live with Christ. If I die, I die with Christ. So I ain't got nothing to lose. I didn't, I didn't think I'd live past 25 years of age anyway, so I'm on borrowed time now. <laughs> That's a great way. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and live. I'm going to pray. 
Uh, we need to learn a lot from this virus can be very helpful for us in the sense of maybe it's time for us to realize that, listen, uh, we need to spend more time with our family. Yeah. We need to spend more time with our children. Yeah. We need to value teachers. Yeah. <laughs> People got to realize, man, listen, now you realize what teachers go through. Yeah. So what makes you tell you they need money for supplies? Just give it. Or yeah, or to lower class class sizes because you're having a tough time dealing with just your if, if you have three kids managing your three kids. These teachers are in classes of thirty kids trying to manage. It, it, you know? it is it is really really uh, unbelievable, man. And it's uh, but so I think that that that's gonna that and, and and the world was changing as far as like small uh, retail they were gonna die. Amazon, look, Walmart killed every mom and pop store. Then Home Depot killed every little hardware store, and Amazon now is killing all of those. So we better start learning how to position ourselves for a different uh, labor force. You know, right. train ourselves, learn, you know, computers, learn uh, uh, coding and stuff like that, because that's going to change. You know, and it's it was happening. Electric vehicles, not now, but in five, ten years, they're going to be here. So people are going to live out in the country where they don't have to live in the cities anymore. So congested. Uh, hopefully, for me, one of the best news is the freaking airlines are going to start getting rid of one third of all the seats that they put in there. That you got to be a hundred pound to be able to sit there comfortably. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's actually a really good positive I hadn't thought about, like the increased yeah, leg room. Not, I'm not fly anymore. You know, I yeah. heard uh, the president of America said, "Well, we're looking at how we're going to cut." I said, "You're thinking, dude. Ain't nobody going to be sitting next to someone." That you're rubbing your whole body against it because you put so many seats in this airplane. Yeah, that's that's over with. And uh, you know we can do a lot. Listen, take temperature, people. When nine one one came and we started taking our shoes off, people thought the world had come to an end. Now at the airport we take our shoes off all the time. No big deal. Right. So you know what? When you go into a restaurant, take a temperature reading. Yeah. You go to a you know if you got a temperature or a cough. You just don't come in. You just go home, you know? Right. And uh, and we'll be all right, man. We, we're going to be just perfectly fine. I mean, it's funny that in the worst, the only time in history that a whole world has shut down, you notice how the stock market is just climbing and climbing and climbing. People don't know how to eat, and the stock market is just... So that's something that I pray to God that we figure out a way to bring some equality of... Uh, so that people can have a dignified wage and be able to support their family in a dignified manner, you know? Yeah. And it's fine. Listen, Jeff Bezos, you risked everything you had. You made all the billion. I applaud you. But you know what? You can live just as comfortable with about half of that, and the other half can help a lot of your employees make 20 bucks an hour instead of 10 15 $7 an hour, and you'll be just fine. Trust me. You'll be able to pay the rent and the taxes on your houses. I have no doubt about that. If not, give it to me and I'll show you how to do it. <laughs> so, you know, and, that, and that's the challenge that we see that, that we're going to, it's a new reality, right? I mean, people going to, good thing is people going to work out of the house more. Yeah. You know, so there will be less traffic. People will be able to spend more instead of two hours in traffic. Yeah. They'll be able to spend more quality time at home. Yep. Uh, this conferencing methods are going to get so freaking good. My son works a lot with a virtual reality and augmented reality. And he's like, Dad, in five years, three years, you're going to be able to go to Egypt, you and I, and visit the pyramids and walk next to each other. I'm never going to leave my house in Atlanta and you won't leave yours in Florida. That's how it's going to be. So, 
nothing to fear. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's definitely opportunity um, for those who have that um, mentality, that work ethic, that uh, innovation to them because they can find a way. Like people are resilient. You want to find a way to be successful. Um, you've got plenty of time and opportunity to do that now. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and think about your mindset. You know, I was talking before, like I said, I'm doing, uh, I'm writing this journal called Narco Mindset Journal. It's my lifelong dream is to pass when people say, how were you able to lose it all and make millions again? How were you able to overcome tortures? How were you able to overcome long prison sentences? Uh, all my children have graduate degrees. All my children are successful. Uh, how were you able to do all that? And I'm like, it's all about mindset. It's how you look at the world through what lenses you look at the world at. You know, like I said, I, I look, I got no fear. Uh, what is there to fear but fear itself? Right. What is the opposite of fear? Love. You know, uh, I'm obsessive about being proactive. America is very reactive. Yeah. I, I look at this fashion, all of them, and like, you've been talking about this crap for 40 freaking years, and now you want to blame this one guy been here three years? How about all those other smart presidents that we have had? Yeah. Why nobody did anything about this? Why I never heard of you then? Yeah. And why I, mean, I never heard of you before today? The, the if, pro- I, if I had that urgency, and I knew this was going to happen, I'd be in every news media in the world because, you know, media loves panic, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's all, you know, at the end of the day, brother, listen, love your children, spend time with your children, love life. Uh, our life is, is a whisper of time. That's another thing. And not this virus, any virus, any sickness, uh, drunk driving, all of that teaches us we're here today, not guaranteed tomorrow. Uh, you know, put value was more important. Our children need our presence, our presence, presence, not presence, you know, uh, they want us, they want something that costs us nothing. And sometimes we're not willing to give, you know, so I'm excited, man. I'm excited about this new world. I'm excited about life, excited about every day. I'm excited about helping people, you know, if, uh, if people want a, a copy of my free book, they can go to my website at Jorge Valdez, PhD.com. Join our community and send you a, a free copy of my latest book, Narco Mindset Freedom Edition. Oh, man. So awesome. I'm very excited. I'm very excited about what life brings us. Can I, and I, I know we're running out of time, but I want to, I have this segment I do. So I want to um, ask you, because um, you're just a good storyteller, <laughs> to uh, go through it. So what I'd like from you, Professor, is your best first for last. We've saved the best first for last. Sponsored by Abstinence. Waiting makes it worthwhile. My, repeat that again? The best first for last. So you know how sometimes people will say, I saved the best for last? So I've been asking guests when I end the pod um, to share the first time they blank. Anything you want to do. A first experience, a first time you whatever. Um, what was one of your best firsts that you've experienced? Oh my God, man. That's a good question. My best first, I'll tell you what my best first is. <clears throat> when I lost everything I had that day, I told you I went from a multimillionaire to nothing. And suddenly for the first time in my life, my life, my life had meaning and purpose. I didn't know what it was. And it was a feeling that I can never explain to you. Uh, if, People think that having all the money in the world, having jets, people at your beck and call, 
is wonderful and joyful. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you, lie to you and tell you that it was not fun. It shows up was fun, man. But it was empty. It didn't give me no joy. To all of a sudden realizing that, man, the one, the, the richest man in the world, not the one that has the most, but the one that needs the least. Oh. So my best first was realizing that I was created for something much greater than what I had become and what I thought I could become, or what I thought I was. And, uh, and just being at a moment in life where I trusted God, not knowing even if he existed, not knowing if he would accept me, sinner as I was, to do a simple miracle, which was only walk with me through that horrific time. So I don't know if that fits to what your people do, because I mean, as far as a lot of best first, I mean, there's a lot of things I've done in life that people say are best. But in reality, looking back, the best was when I gave it all up and just trusted God that uh, he would never give me more than I could have. I, I, I think that's beautifully perfect. And I love um, so many people will have possessions and feel like I, you said it um it's not how much you have the richest man isn't who has the most but needs the least and the possessions at some point tend to own you versus you owning them without a doubt you become a slave to them yeah. and i think my best and last <clears throat> is and i i do uh finish with a lot of, i a lot of the time when i speak i tell this to people now you guys think hard about what i'm about to tell you but when the pages of history are written Will history ever remember your name? So let me repeat that. So when the pages of history are written, will history ever remember your name? I leave I, I leave that thought with a lot of people, but I speak to many crowds, billionaires, kids, drug addicts. And here's the thing. History never remembers anyone because they had money, because they had power, because they own big businesses, because they own big mansions. History only remembers those who have impacted other people's lives. Perfect example, Mother Teresa. A little bitty nothing nun in an insignificant part of God's earth will never ever be forgotten. So what I mean by that is, at the end of the day, all that matters in life, how we've impacted somebody else's life. We live in a world of a lot of people suffering way before this virus. There's a lot that we can do. A lot that we can do. Maybe sometimes it's just listen and really care. You know? Yeah. Maybe sometimes it's, I'm not going to pray for you. I'm going to do something for you. Yeah. So that's always my, my best last. <laughs> the best last. I liked your best first, honestly, because I think that's a, the, the, well, I like both. I'm not saying I didn't like the other one, but the the mentality of not not living life for possessions, but living life so that you don't need things um, is is very empowering. Um, and I think that's a great story because I can't imagine signing how so many people would feel if they had all this, as you explained, and then you sign it over, and now you're left with not even a dollar for a candy bar. Like that's that that could take people to a lot of dark places. And instead you found it, you used it as a way to um, become empowered. No, it was, it was tremendous. It was the greatest gift God ever gave me because 
you know, when you rely upon money, I mean, what is money after all? It's just a piece of paper, right? Yeah. Money is only the value you attach to it. But it doesn't buy you joy. It doesn't buy you happiness. Uh, you know, it destroys people. It destroys families. I'm not saying we don't need money. Don't get me wrong. If I didn't think that we didn't need, did not need money, I would have worked as hard as I worked to create my wealth today. Right. <clears throat> but when we built our company, we gave 10% of the top, right off the top of our growth to, a fund, to our foundation. We created a foundation to help others get off drugs, to help through athletics, through different programs that we did. And uh, it's amazing how the joy that we got doing that. And even today, my wife and I, we like everything that we do now, podcast, YouTube channel. Uh, I travel. I write books. Uh, my mission is to distribute 10 million books in the next five years in prisons. And we send thousands of books. I, I pay for them. Even though I write them, doesn't mean someone's got to print them. And they don't come cheap. And I send them to them so I can give people hope and meaning. And I get emails every day. Uh, in letters saying, you know, I just simply tell them my story, impact and change their lives. So that's that's my mission. That's what's joyful for me. And, uh, you know, I live a great life, but compared to the life I live, I'm a pauper. Right. But I live a joyful life. Been married to the same woman 24 years. My six children are, are doing all great right now. And one's a lawyer, the other ones have master's degrees. So, I just thank God it's been better to me than I was to myself. So, Man, that's powerful. Better to me than I was to myself. Well, sir, I can't thank you enough for scheduling and taking the time to uh, come on and share your story. It was um, riveting, man. Riveting. Did not expect, did not expect that. <laughs> thank you so much for your time, doctor. Hey, Sean, thanks so much. And you show notes, can you put up my webpage so people would know how to, I answer all emails myself, so. Absolutely. I'll put that in the description. All right, brother. God bless you. Be safe and best to your family. Thank you. Appreciate you letting us get to know you. Encore, encore, encore. And we have George, who was kind enough to uh, come back on to go a little deeper into narco culture and how America is perceived by it. So thank you again. Um, I'll say it one last time, Professor, for coming on. And then I'll try to call you George for the rest of the time. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Yeah, my wife said that if she had gone through the pain of getting a PhD like I do, uh, she would make everybody in the world call me doctor. I said, well, then you need to start calling me doctor right now. She goes, no, no, not me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, thanks, John. It really is a pleasure to be on your podcast again. I really had a good time last time. So uh, thank you for inviting me back. No, thank thank you for giving the time. And um, to catch people up, we were talking a little bit before I started recording. Um, you had sent me your book, which is, it basically is almost like an autobiography of going through your life, the narco mindset. And when I hung up with you, I think we did what, maybe two weeks ago in my head, I'm literally going like, oh my God, I just fucking interviewed Scarface. I just interviewed Scarface. Oh my God. And part of me is like, why do you have that reaction and that reverence for that type of character? 
right? Like that type of lifestyle. I open up your book, second page of the prologue, you get into that about maybe people should focus on like the results and the unfulfillment of the lifestyle more so than the glorification of the women and the drugs and like the fast lifestyle. So I was kind of hoping to get, come on or have you back on to just almost like get your point of view on, clearly you don't enjoy the fact that it's glorified. (laughs) No, by no, by no means. And you know what? And here's something really, really interesting. And, uh, in the, uh, I always tell people, let me, people say, let me tell you the truth. So when they said that to me, I said, well, you mean you've been lying to me before? So I just (laughs) say to be transparent. So I know that culture. The first thing that I like to let everybody knows, uh, and and recently I was asked on uh, on Vlad TV on the podcast, you know, how do you feel? How do you sleep at night with all the harm that you did? And uh, number one, I do not ever, ever justify anything that I did. I mean, people say, oh, well, it was back in the 70s. You know, look, what I did was wrong, horrific. It kills me every day to see that something I was instrumental in starting it's hurting so many people, uh, even dear to my family. So therefore, there's nothing that I can do about what I did. I am sorry. Uh, if I had to redo it all over again, of course, never. I'd rather go through the tortures in Panama five times than ever be part of something creating a narco culture in the United States. But I can't live on the past. So therefore, like I tell people, the past cannot define me. So what I do now, and this is important, is not either to make up for the sin that I did, because we never make up for the wrong that we do. What I do now is because God's put it on my heart to make a difference in the world. And if I was instrumental in creating something horrific, perhaps I can be instrumental in creating a different culture that helps. So that's, I I need to start with that. But number two, I watch Narcos, for example. I watch American Made. I watch Scarface. And here's what's really sad for me, knowing that a lot of that is fake. I find myself rooting for the bad guy, too. (laughs) There's something about that. And then I have to catch myself. Right. I really have to catch myself because I'm like, why? So based upon that phenomenon, it's really been dawning a lot on me. And uh, I I, I ended up writing a blog about it. And what I write in the blog is that, like, for example, not only men, but here's a phenomenon. Why were women so attracted to guys that were bad people? You know? Yeah. I mean, they, they did horrible things. Forget about any good that they did. You know, like, and then we'll get into Pablo Escobar. But <clears throat> what happens is, I think that there's a part of us innate that looks at this gangster, you know, uh, let, let's say Pablo. Let's call him, for example. Uh, we looks at him and say, wow, you know, that guy's like the ultimate man. That guy doesn't fear anything. He's got power. You know, people respect him. And I guess there's, uh, Sean, an innate part of us that, uh, that yawns for that, right? And, and, and wants to feel that, hey, you know, how great would it be if I can have that power? How great would it be if I can look at any woman and have any woman I want? How great could it be if I could buy anything? How great could it all that be? So society uh, emphasizes that and reinforces that. Because mm-hmm. if you look at it and you look at narcos, it's a whole series of horrific acts. And then it ends. 
it ends with the guy dead or in prison the rest of his life. Yeah, well, that, that's the funny part. Like, Scarface's house gets raided, you're getting shot up. Like, Pablo Escobar is dying, like, basically almost like Saddam Hussein, according to Narcos, where you're alone, you're hiding, you're, you're dirty, you don't know who to trust, you're, you're borderline like crazy. But yet everyone wants, not everyone, but so many kids are all about, so many people are all about that lifestyle. It, it, it's a weird phenomenon. Yeah. And uh, let me tell you about, Pablo, I really, I'll, I'll say this in your show. I know I'm probably going to get the, the DA and those DA agents that claim they killed him. Pablo killed himself. Period. Really? Okay? Yeah. Pablo killed him. Pablo told me over and over again, he said, doctor, the United States will never take me walking. They'll take me laying down. The only reason they found, okay, so Pablo, he was trying to get his family out of the United States. And and I know a lot of stuff about that. I, I talked to him literally months before he died. And they're trying to get him out of the United States. I mean, out of Colombia, because they're going to kill him. When he killed those two brothers in the prison uh, that you see on Narcos, which also the series uh, has it all wrong. But anyway, he does kill those two brothers. And when he does, then everybody in the cartel turns against him because they're like, wow, if you kill the guys that you grew up with in, since you were babies and uh, you're going nuts now and, and, and you're taxing all of us so much money, they turned on him and because nobody would have killed him if it wasn't that, that group that knew everything about him, which was the uh, other people that were associated with what was called the Medellin cartel. So therefore, when he realizes the last straw that his family goes to Germany and the United States puts pressure on Germany, doesn't let them get off the airplane, brings him back during the hotel. See, when Pablo was talking to his family, he would, he would get on a taxi with 10, 15 cell phones and talk for two, two and a half minutes. And they could never trace him. And where he got on a taxi, the police wasn't even going to come around that place. It was, you know, literally he was a god in, those, in that neighborhood. Anyway, long story. So when he realizes that his family is going to die sooner or later, right? They blew up his house. They barely survived. Uh, they're going to kill him because they know that that's the way they're going to get to him. So he realizes he's got to go. The only way his family will ever survive is if he dies. So that day, he stays on the phone for 30 so odd minutes. Oh. And when he stays on the phone, that's how they find him. They don't find him because, I mean, as a matter of fact, when the guy that's tracing it and realizes his voice and is looking out there, he doesn't, he, he doesn't even believe that it's real. You know, it's impossible. <laughs> this can be real. There's no way this guy's going to be on the phone. And, he, and you can see on the recording, his son telling him to hang up, hang up, hang up, hang up, and he will not hang up. And his son, in some interviews he's given, I believe he's correct. So what ended up happening is when he gets on that roof, if you, if you hear his son talk about it, because uh, he, he would be a greater authority than me because he saw the body, he was shot behind the ear, Right. So that four is, he you know, that's the only way that he could have killed himself, you know, oh. shot himself behind the ear. I mean, there's no marksman that's going to be like so good from far away because they weren't going to get near him. And he died. And, you know, he was, I mean, he was crazy, you know. So, <clears throat> so that's that part. But when we glorify characters like that, we really don't realize because how many times do we glorify good people? How many times do we glorify people that are impacting the world and making a difference? For example, I'll give you a perfect example. It was so easy for me to recruit people to join my organization, Sean, when I would tell them, listen, you're going to have a hell of a ride, but this is going to be the end of your life. You're going to die or you're going to die in prison. 
So you choose. And then we join. Okay, so easy. How come is it so difficult for me to get thousands of people to hear my message to join and I and do, for example, what I call the power of three? How did I build my organization? Okay, so I got three people that I grew up with that know would die for me. And I asked each of them, so I picked, let's say I picked you, Sean, and I picked Bill and Rob. And I said, okay, guys, now you're part of my organization. So now, Sean, you go and do the same thing I just did. You oh. go find three people that you've known and you know would die for you. And like that, exponentially. Right. After the second tier, nobody knew me. See? Because I didn't communicate with all those people. Right. So that's how we became enormous, mystic to a certain extent. So I'm saying to myself now, how come this is so difficult now? Here I am. I'm not asking for money. I'm spending my own money, my retirement age, which I should be just playing golf. And uh, I'm working harder than I ever worked in my life. Why is it so hard for people to do what I did for bad, for good? Right. Right. So society doesn't glorify that. And, and society, why does society glorify athletes, glorify celebrities? A lot of, I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of these people are the scum of the earth, man. You know? <laughs> and, and we make him out to be God, right? And and how did I feel I was God? Not because I looked in the mirror and said, wow, George, you're so good looking that God must look like you. You know, is that I, I could do whatever the hell I wanted and people would laugh. People would think it was great. You know, people just, whatever I wanted. I mean, go to a club, see a girl I like, and tell my body, I tell her boyfriend, he's got to leave. And people thought that was great. No, man, that was heinous. I was disrespectful to women that I, I adore my mom more than anyone in the world, yet I was disrespectful to every woman. Right. You know, uh, so therefore, uh, we do, we glorify that culture and we glorify that gangster, you know, but without realizing that we're having a, a horrific impact because if I sit there and I watch Scarface and I'm thinking that Tony Montana is the greatest thing in the world and my son my six-year-old son is looking at that. He's going to believe that Tony Montana, whatever Tony Montana does, is the right thing to do. You know, snort cocaine, shoot people, you know, all of that. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a horrific thing, but I think it's, it's part of, a, of our innate nature. You know, like I tell people, I think that uh, if we're given the choice to do good or bad, we'll do bad first, right? You know, I, it's, it starts with a look at my little daughter, Isabella. She was two years old, and, and we went to uh, this restaurant that when the bread came out of the kitchen, man, it was just like filled the room, and it was amazing. So she didn't want to eat her food. <laughs> all, of sudden, all of a sudden, I said, you got to eat your food. My tummy hurts. Right. My tummy hurts. And all of a sudden, the bread comes, and she just goes for it. Bam. <laughs> I said, whoa, your tummy hurts. She looked at me with a pretty little eyes and said, Daddy. Bread makes my tummy feel better. So, <laughs> I promise you, brother. I did not teach you how to lie. Yeah, right. She just, yeah, kids kind of just figure it out. They pick it up, man. It's like a manipulation kind of a thing. Um, the, people can figure out real quick how to manipulate to get what they want. They, they uh, really can. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, it's crazy. I mean, at an early age. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's uh, like Paul says, you know, we have just two animals within us, you know, and want to do good and want to do bad. And, so whoever we feed most that day, the one that's going to win, you know? So you had brought up the Pablo Escobar killing himself as like a misconception. Um, is there something else in Narcos that you feel is like a kind of a 
over glorification or like a over dramatic um, showing. Because, yeah, I mean, well, I'm it, sorry it, to cut you off, but like in reading your book, man, it's pretty clear like you were so successful because you just got numbers so well. Like you could just figure out how to make numbers. And aside from the, the working and the traveling, all that, but a big strength was like, it was literally an accounting business. It came down to numbers, but numbers, you can't like have some guy crunching numbers on a desk and make a nine part series. Right. Uh, okay. So uh, in the fall, I can't say what it is, but if they follow me or follow Raconteur Studios, R's and Robert A K O N T U R. They're the people that make cocaine cowboys. Okay. If you follow them uh, and wait for their next major, major production, it's going to be numerous episodes. I'm in, a, I'm in mo- all the episodes. They asked me a question that's really, really interesting. And I had really never even thought about it. And the question is the following. Why was it so easy for you to walk away? Okay. Now, I'm walking away with making a million to a month without doing nothing. I'm walking away with power that no one can imagine. So why was it so easy for you to walk away and stay away? And yet for other people that have a lot of money, a lot of power like, like you, that are fugitives, don't go to, like, for example, why did El Chapo did not go to a country where there's no extradition? There's plenty of them. Hmm. You know, he had money, passports and jets. So why did those people don't? And the answer is really, <clears throat> I mean, actually, I discovered the answer, answering the question. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny. But in my eyes, Sean, I was not a drug dealer. In my eyes, I was a businessman, right? When I got involved with drugs, we had construction companies. We had a, a horse breeding farm, cattle, uh, orange groves, uh, airlines. We had a lot of different businesses. I went to my office. I get up at 4.30 in the morning every day of my life since I was 10. I was at my office at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I left at 6 o'clock at night. I ran it like a business. When people don't know who I was, yeah, because I made a point of making sure that you did not know who I was. Now, the government, unfortunately, knew it because my attorney betrayed me. <clears throat> but I ran it like a business. So when I, uh, I started and I felt I wasn't hurting anyone, I went to prison, come out, and now we have all the killings going on and all that. Because this is I like, ni- I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's like 1985-ish, right? Exactly. I get started in 1977, yeah. 76, but I became real powerful in 77. I went to prison in 79, still ran the, the cartel from till 80, until I realized that I wasn't coming out of prison. <clears throat> and I handed over to these kids that were that I grew up with, uh, uh, one kid. And he ended up becoming very, very, very powerful. Then I got out of prison, and I was angry. And I shouldn't have done anything. I was a multimillionaire. And, uh, but I just felt like I got to get even because I was arrested in, uh, in Panama. There was no drugs. Uh, Noriega sold the drugs, so there was no evidence of drugs. But I didn't commit a crime in the United States. And they kidnapped me to the United States. Then they couldn't charge me in Florida because they realized there was not enough venue. Then they take me to Macon, Georgia, where I'd never been in my life, and charged me in a case of people that I had just met three months ago and were fugitive three years ago. <clears throat> so I had nothing to do with these people. So when, when this happens, I'm just angry. I'm like, hey, you know what? There was something inside of me that uh, just wanted to be powerful again. Mm. 
I go back to the same thing, but then I realized the world had drastically changed, 85, 86. And then uh, about March or April of 87 is when I quit, when I walked away. But it was easy because I just, I looked at it as like, okay, I'm just not going to sell this product anymore. You know, like if you have a company, a business, right. <clears throat> and you're selling widgets, and all of a sudden there's not a demand for widgets. <laughs> you just pivot. You know? <clears throat> yeah, I'm sorry. Something yeah, you, you just pivot you find the next and, go, and go do what there's a demand for. And that's what I did. The problem with El Chapo and these people, they can't leave. Why? Because that's their identity. They're mm. drug dealers. They're criminals. So not to say that I was not a criminal, but in my eyes, my identity was not as a criminal. It was a businessman selling cocaine as one of my products, along with cattle, oranges, all of that. With these people, that is their only identity. So therefore, since it's their only identity, why? How can they leave? The payoff isn't getting caught. You know? So you see El Chapo, what business does he have meeting with uh, Sean Penn and Kate Castillo? Well, you know, back then I would have liked to meet Kate Castillo because she's pretty gorgeous. But what <laughs> the guy's a fugitive, man. The guy's what the guy's making a billion dollars a month. You know, he's actually he actually makes us and Pablo Escobar look like kindergarten kids stealing ice cream. You know? So what the hell is he doing? You know what I mean? In a resort in uh in in, in Mexico. This guy could have been in a country with no extradition. I mean, look at Robert Vesco, the, the first big money scandal. He went to Cuba. They didn't catch him. They didn't bring him. He died there of old age. Chapo could have gone to Cuba, you know, take all his money, buy half of Cuba, live happily thereafter. But I, they can't. I got and, it. And you, you know? It's, I guess it's just like a, um, a planning. You're right. The, the power of like maybe that. Um, hubris of just feeling like I'm above it. I won't get caught. I got to ask, man. Cause like, I'm like, when you told me about the grocery store or whatever, making like $800 and they're claiming a <coughs> hundred grand. Right. And it's like, if you buy something, the principle of two, like you can mark it up maybe twice. Right. How come the source of the cocaine dealers aren't selling it to you for more money? Do they not realize how much you're making? Like, cause you guys are like tripling, quadrupling what you're buying it for. And like, and then some, I was amazed at how freaking, how much, how much profit per kilo. Oh my God. Think about it. But like, why when didn't I they charge you more? When I took over and we're bringing 800 to a thousand kilos, 1977, 78, uh, we were buying it for $18,000 in Colombia and transporting it for another, uh, I started paying these two custom guys three grand a, a, a kilo, ended up paying them seven thousand. But you know, we had twenty five thousand in it, and I was selling it for seventy in California. So you know, I was making forty five thousand dollars per kilo, and when you multiply that times a thousand kilos, and you get nothing more than forty five million dollars. You know, and uh, you do that a couple times a month. But think about $45 million in 1978. We're talking about, I don't know what, $200 million now? Yeah. So, so yeah, it was, it was a horrendous amount of money. It was crazy. And, and, and this, you know, that's a good question because this is something I, I guess I'm not that smart. So it takes me a lot of years to discover things about myself. But one of the things that, that, uh, that I realized uh, also is that, you lose value. You lose, you start making so much money. Okay. So what, what makes a kid 
So I, and, I, and I'll tell you that. this. Why, how, how I realized about that. So recently, I talked with this girl named Alina who worked with me at the Federal Reserve Bank. Okay? Uh, we connected. I, I had not talked to her since 1976 when I walked away from the Federal Reserve Bank. So we connected, and uh, she's four years older than me. So I, I was 17. She was 21. And uh, she said she couldn't believe it when she found out. She's like, actually, someone told her that they thought there was something funny because he said another work co-worker had come to a party I had at, the, at my ranch. And the guy like, Alina, I don't know what he's into, but there's gold everywhere. And there's Dom Perignon flowing like if it was uh, table water, tap water. <laughs> and she, But, of course, she don't believe it because I was the ultimate nerd. Right. You know, and then she goes by the airport one day and finds the book coming clean. And she's like, oh, my God. And she tells to me, she says, I never forgot. You told me you were going to become a lawyer, but by the age of 30, you were going to be a millionaire. I guess you achieved one of your purposes. And she says, I just, out of everyone that worked at the bank, every human being that we knew, I would have bet anything in the world you'd be the only one that would never, ever fall into that. Because I was like so lecture focused, Sean, on what I wanted to be in life. I never broke the law. I would go to a party, people smoke pot, I leave. Uh, I don't have a traffic ticket. I'm the president of the Young Republican Party in the state of Florida. Uh, you know, I would like work full time for the government. Went to University of Miami full time after work. You know, I would like laser focus. So she says, like, why? I say, you know, is in life we draw lines, and uh, that we think we're never going to cross, and then we put a little toe over it one time, and and she's and I said, look, it it it'll happen to anybody because. I'm going to the grocery store and I see these people can read and write and they got a fleet of brand new Mercedes. You know, they got gold like galore and they're making all this money. Here I am busting my butt. I had a big salary at the Federal Reserve Bank, 3,080 cents an hour. You know, so I'm making a, a, you know, close to 150 bucks a week. And all of a sudden these guys are making a million. Yeah. And I've gone through college and I've done nothing but work all my life. You know, you fall. So how do you how do you not fall? You got to really be when you draw those lines in life, then you gotta have protectors around those lines so that you don't, you know, you don't fall into the trap. You know, you gotta watch who you hang around with. You got to watch what you see on television, you know? Yeah. Because whatever goes through your eyes settles in your heart. You know, and uh is 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 very very intriguing and very very conniving, you know, and that is it's hard to understand. I mean, it's easy for me to see it, you know. So like I like with women, I'm like, why why do I treat women? Like, and I mean, it's not that I I cursed out or anything like that, but basically to me they were just you know, Saturday, hey listen, I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you life you can live, and you're there on my beck and call whenever I want to. And all I care from you is sex. Why? When I adore and respect my mother more than anyone in the world. Well, actually, editing rug come, coming clean, it dawned on me that when I came from Cuba, we were so poor. And I remember girls laughing at my brother and I constantly. And I remember one girl, and never forget this. Man, I was 10, so I was 54 years ago, like saying, George, are you going to the party tonight? And I'm like, what party? And she's like, oh, the party that we're going to have in my house. And I'm like, oh, great. I love to. She's like, oh, I forgot. We don't invite people like you. Oh, damn. Just embarrassed the hell out of me in front of everyone. Yeah. And, and Sean, that settled in my heart without 
subconsciously. And I said to myself that day, I said, you know what? One day I'm going to make it and I'm going to make you pay. And all this is subconsciously. So therefore, all these poor women pay. So I'll give you a story that I don't think is in the book. So there was this girl, Miss Spain, named Irene. And probably one of the most beautiful women. She was second in Miss World. Gorgeous, gorgeous woman. And we became very close friends. And one day it dawned on me. I, I mean, I traveled with her all over Europe. We slept in the same bed. Uh, we bathed. I mean, I saw her nude. She saw me nude. I never, never touched, touched one fingernail. And I'm like, why do you respect her so much? And then there's other ones, man. You treat her like, like a rag doll. But what happened with Irene, and I'm telling you, this is how your mind works. Irene, when she was Miss, Miss Spain and Miss World, she came to Colombia, was raped. And when she went back to Spain, now this is 1975, you know, she goes back to Spain and she is dethroned, right? Big, big embarrassment. And uh, so when I met and knew her and I had all this power, I baptized her child. I bought her a house. You know, I respect her because in my subconscious, she was a victim like me. Oh. You know what I mean? And it's crazy. Think about it. I don't, I don't realize I've done this. 1976, I write the book and I, 23 years later, it dawned on me. Why did I respect her so much? She was probably... The woman that I, at that time, that attracted me the most. But to me, she was like my mother. She was like my sister, you know. The thought of even having sex would never even crossed my mind. The empathy. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, I'm so... I'm still, and I'm a little bit of a numbers guy, not like you. And I just can't get past... How, how does that price get set in Colombia at 18000 a kilo if... You guys are flipping it to seventy. Are you like keeping that information kind of secret from them? Is that like, man, oh, no, we just no, no, got no, so no, much? No, no, cost. no, no. There's no secret there. Uh, the thing about it is, first of all, when when I brought when I started taking uh, cocaine to California in large amounts, of money, we were the first. So you know, people they know, and and how the price got set. It actually got set because this guy kept harassing me and uh, telling me that he thought that this boat that I was refurbishing was a, a cocaine boat. And I'm like, of course not. Why would I put a cocaine boat under my name? Well, long story, uh, to get rid of them, I'm like, yeah, man, we're big drug dealers. And here's <laughs> the, I found out that it was selling it in, in Miami wholesale for 45000 So I'm like, but we deal with nothing with the best and the price is 70000 And he's like, wow, that's, that's horrendous. I said, hey, I told you. I told you that you couldn't afford it. And then the freaking guy talked to his partners and then ended up buying four or five hundred kilos from me within a year, every month. God. You know, so how the, the price originally, how it got settled <clears throat> in uh, uh, at the beginning, when we started, Colombia produced no cocaine. Right. Uh, all the cocaine was produced in Peru and Bolivia. Hmm. So people, people go to Peru and Bolivia, but in, in Peru and Bolivia, they didn't crystallize it. Right. What they had is what was called base. In other words, you take the cocoa leaves, you put it through the process, and you have this paste, you know, which is like a shock-looking, real dull-looking color. Then you bring it, and when you crystallize it uh, through ether and, and different process, then you end up going ahead and and uh, then it becomes cocaine, right? So it was it was ten thousand in Bolivia, and uh, they would bring it to Colombia. 
the different people that will bring it and then they will sell it to to the different groups because like I said, I don't know if I mentioned my first podcast, but there was no Medellin drug cartel. It was a joke. You know, that's a name given to us by the Americans. It was a, a whole group of organizations, you know, and everybody had to. Now, when I started, that first group of Manuel Garces, three other guys, and myself was the group that controlled everything. But later on, out of that group, other groups spinned out in. Because, I mean, Pablo didn't even come into the scene until 81, 82. And then you had Gasha Shaw Brothers, all those different uh, groups, you know. So the uh, so when we started, it was eighteen thousand dollars. Whoever transported it and took the 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 risk, you know what I mean? Gotcha. They went ahead and uh, and marked it up. So now when we, I started to go to Bolivia, they uh, they we the price increased drastically. Uh, I mean, not decreased drastically for us. I ended up paying. Uh, $10,000 a kilo, which was the wholesale. And then we ended up getting two for one. I mean, it got compl- uh, complicated. And then eventually, Colombia started growing its own uh, cocaine. And uh, we went ahead and, you know, produced it. So to the point that cocaine later on, the price dropped from 70 in California to 60, dropped to 30 something in Miami, dropped to 20. You know, it just, it, it's all about supply and demand. At the beginning, there wasn't that much supply. Gotcha. So the demand and the demand was horrific, you know. Man, yeah, I'm. It's it's. I guess, and I'm just thinking again, not knowing. Like, if I'm selling this to you for eighteen, and then I find out you're able to sell it for seventy, like we're gonna have a conversation. I would think and be like, "Hey, man, I'm giving it to you now for now. It's thirty a kilo or something, you know." So yeah, I'm, but I'm, to, for us was the hard part. Remember now, yeah, uh, you got all these people uh, making this this stuff in Indian, literally in Bolivia, and then we got it transported to the United States. Now, that just not as easy as just, you know, ordering Amazon now. You know? <laughs> and then then you transport it to your buyer. And then who is your buyer? I know this guy is not going to rip you off, betray you, or anything like that, you know? Gotcha. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a whole, whole process. And so how much we're selling it for has no idea with, you know, the uh, – the people that are that were producing have no idea what we're selling it for, you know? Okay, yeah, and that's kind of what I was wondering too. Like they almost couldn't have because if they would have known, I feel like you have to mark that price up. Even though you guys are taking on the majority of the risk, it's like, I don't know, it's like to me, I'd be like, I'm making this and then this guy's making this much more money off of it than I am and I'm the one making it. Like I feel like that would be my mentality and I, it, I've always wondered about that. Yeah, no, no, and also, yeah, it, but it's also almost like <clears throat> me saying, "Hey, I'm selling someone a kilo for forty thousand. They're cutting it, and uh, and they're selling it after they sell grams. They're gonna sell it for two hundred thousand. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm happy with my kilo and and being able and to that, make that you know, profit with, with what I, with what I make. You know? How? <laughs> And the plane story, and I haven't gotten, I got a little bit to the plane crash in the chapter. I don't know if you get to it further in the Narco Mindset book, but the plane crash in Panama, is that the first? No, you you were driving cross country delivering as well, right? Oh, listen, by the time the plane crash in Panama, I have been in the business two and a half years. Yeah. So you're like, you chose because you're just that kind of like, not a control freak, but you just want to be in charge of making sure things are done right, that you're actually traveling with the products. How come you're not having like 
other people take it so you get less risk if you get pulled over or something. Yeah, no, look, after the first year, I didn't even come near the drugs. Got you. Know, what happened with that specific was, so in 19, uh, late 1978, I get approached by the, the Bolivian military asking, wanting to uh, deal directly with me, right? So when they approach us and I go to my godfather and I tell them to, uh, that, you know, what was going on that, listen, they made us this great deal. We're paying 18 and, uh, now we can buy for 10, but instead of 10, not only 10 is if we buy X amount, if we buy a hundred kilos, they'll give us a hundred on credit. So our profit margin, you know, is going to be enormous. Uh, so when I do that, my godfather says, uh, you're crazy. Why would we want to do that? You know, and I'm like, listen, it, it's tremendous. But he's like, look, those people over there are animal. And uh, I'm like, look, nothing's going to happen to us. Nothing's going to happen to me. He said, George, you're making so much money already, you know, without taking any risk. Why would you put a whole operation uh, at risk? And of course, you know, going back to that God complex, right? Yeah. That, hey, nothing's going to happen to me. And like, Manuel, nothing is going to happen to me, you know? And he's like, uh, so he's, you know, going crazy and, uh, you know, but, you know, I'm young, I'm 23, I'm an idiot. I guess I wasn't happy with making $2 million a month. Now we can make $7 million a month, $7 million twice a month. Yeah. You're just looking at the numbers and just going crazy thinking, Hey man, it's so easy. We got this whole process set up. Let's yeah, just but, let's and, and think about it though. Yeah. Now I'm looking at it and that's how I talked about it, but think about it really was the money was interested what, what really drove me. I mean, three months earlier, I'm sitting on my couch in my office and my uh, housekeeper asked me if I can move the couch away from the wall uh, so that she can clean underneath, and I'm sure. So we moved the couch, and in the back of the couch was a bag with $700,000. <laughs> I have no idea who sent it. I had no idea where it come from, and it was just, and, and how long had it even been there? <laughs> So that tells you that money doesn't, it wasn't really what drove us, right? Yeah, well, I, yeah, right. So you just saw it as a challenge to go for so, Bolivia? Yeah, probably or? that's what it was. You know, I, I just want to do something bigger. This is like too easy right now. And, uh, you know, we're going to get bigger and greed. I guess greed gets in and power, you know, all those elements. Can, so I go to Bolivia and I work and I strike out the deal. And the guy, you saw the movie uh, Scarface, the guy that comes and kills Tony Montana. Okay. Roberto Suarez, that was my partner in Bolivia. That's why I saw in, in some books that they have written, uh, like uh, a great book, Hotel Scarface by my buddy Robin Farsad, F-A-R-Z-A-D. Uh, no, uh, if you want to know about that world, that's a fascinating book because he does a great job of this hotel, which is supposed to be the hotel that Tony Montana hung around, you know, called the Mutiny where every movie star was there, all of this stuff. Anyway, and, and I and I was, I had a, uh, if you had a table there, because it was very, very powerful individual. I, I mean, it was the place, I mean, I'm telling it like Dan Johnson, everybody in the world. So, that's the hotel, and that was a part of it. So I work out the deal with him, and I come back to Miami, and, and we arrange to get it all done, and I go to, to Columbia to show the pilots where they were going to land and refuel on their way back from Bolivia. So 
we do that. And then I call, I have my representative over there, who was the guy that was going to come back in the airplane with the drugs. And I said, <clears throat> when I call him, he's like, we have a problem. And I'm like, what is the problem? He says, they screwed you. And I'm like, what? He said, yeah. He says, they, uh, all they have here is the cocaine that you bought. Uh, all you're, you're supposed to get them credit is not here. And you're like, nobody screws George Valdez. Do they know who I am? Yeah. And you're can taking you that super personal, right? Can you believe right? how stupid that is? I'm, yeah. I'm dealing with directly with this guy that's overthrow, overthrown three governments, right? The general. <laughs> <laughs> and killed, I don't know how many people killed. Now, I'm 23 years old. I look like a quintessential nerd. I got braces. Uh, you saw the pictures in my book. I mean, it's like nuts. So I'm going to go there and strain this guy out, right? <laughs> I, I, I love the fact that you said, yeah, I'm going to go straighten the guy out who's overthrown three governments. <laughs> three governments kill I don't know how many people. I mean, I don't think there's enough cemeteries for this dude. So lo and behold, I go down there. Oh my and when God. I meet with him, the first words out of my mouth is, if you ever screw me again, I'm going to kill you. Now, the guy next to me peed on his pants, right? Well, he heard me say that. Uh, the guy that worked for me. So he, he, I think he had a little more intelligence than I did. He's like, holy shit, did he really say that? They, they, they're going to kill us right now. Not only are you not going to get the 100 you paid, 150 you paid for, they're going to they're gonna keep the 150 the credit. They're going to keep the 150 you paid for. Yeah, right? The you disrespect. Know? And God. I'm like, uh, and the guy looks at me, smiles and says, i never forget that. He says, you are either the craziest son of a bitch I ever met or got the biggest set of balls I ever know. <laughs> if you ever talk to me like that, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and then it dawned on me that I think uh, I made a little blunder there. <laughs> but but he and then immediately he said, but you know what? I like you a lot. Yeah, because so, you stood up for yourself, right? Like you he were said, like, do Man. this deal, and then the next airplane, I'll, find, I'll give you the entire load on credit. Now, God. So we, we arranged it. Now, remember, this is 1979, so there's not as much flights going places. I had to be, in a day and a half, I, in two days, I had to be in Nicaragua because I had a meeting with Somoza, the general. And the thing about it was that there was just no planes out of Bolivia that would get me to Nicaragua. You know, they had a plane every, you know, four or five days. So there was no way I was going to make that trip. So I'm like, okay, I just get on my own airplane. And then, you know, nothing's happened. We've never lost a load in our life. You know, we got the best fleet. We got everything. So I get on the airplane. We land in Colombia. Perfectly fine. No problem. And then my godfather's like, listen, forget the meeting with uh, uh, Somoza. We'll cancel for another day. I said, I can't. I got to get this meeting because after that, he's going to fly me to the Dominican Republic where my ex-wife is waiting for me. And we got to go to Germany because I'm. I just bought, ordered this beautiful uh, Mercedes convertible, and I'm going to spend a month with it. We're trying to reconcile. And uh, so he's like, he's just like fed up. He's like, you're out of your mind, man. I said, look, I told you nothing's happened. I made it to Bolivia. I strained everything out over there. I'm here now. Now it's just a little short haul to uh, Nicaragua. Well, we crashed over the jungles of Panama, and the rest of the story. What was the meeting with Samosa for? We were going to start shipping cocaine to Nicaragua, and he was going to send it to us. In, uh, so we're meeting at an island called Corn Island, which was a big fishery. So he was going to send it in refrigerated containers. You know, the, the, the company that they had over there was a government company. So it would have come 
like nothing. You know, it would have been very, very easy. So all we had to do is get the uh, cocaine to uh, Nicaragua, and then from Nicaragua, we'll pick it up in Miami directly gotcha. from customs. Gotcha. So, but uh, needless to say, I didn't get to meet with uh, Somoza, and <laughs> we didn't get to uh, use Corn Island, and I crashed it over Panama. But it's the, it's the God complex, right? It's the yeah. complex that nothing can happen to you, you know? Yeah, no. And uh, you do it. I, and, you know, and uh, and it's really, you know, it's like sin, right? It's like I, I tell people, you know, the first time I cheated on my wife, man, I couldn't sleep for a week, Sean. Because, I mean, I was just a good kid, man. Right. But the second time, well, I didn't sleep for two days. The third time, I slept like a baby. And that's what happens in life, Right. I, I say no one ever starts snorting an ounce of cocaine. He's going to die. No one drinks a liter or, or, or a pint or, or a bottle of vodka, gin, bourbon, whatever. He's going to overdose on alcohol and die. But we start with a little bit, right? And a little bit. And, 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 it and that's how sin creeps because the thing about sin is that it's fun. You know, I tell people if hitting myself with a hammer on my thumb was sinful, <laughs> man, I would never sin, right? That's pretty good. But yeah. but it is. And I mean, if people like people say, do you miss that life? I'm like, that is the stupidest question in the world. Of right. course I miss that life. Especially when I used to travel coach and next to two people a little heavier than me and we couldn't hardly all breathe. Yeah. You know, uh, compared to like, hey, let's go to Disney World today. And I take my jet. From Miami to Orlando, which is four hours, spend three thousand dollars in takeoff and landing to go to Disney World. Or at twelve o'clock at night, me and the guy were like, you know, hey, let's just go to the ranch and play basketball. So we call the helicopter and we do that. And of course, that stuff is going to who the hell is that not going to attract? Uh, you know, you see whatever you want, cars, right. houses, you can have everything. But the thing about it is the consequences of all that, the emptiness of all that. Because you feel that once you get that, you're going to be happy, man. You know, yeah. once, once I date that beautiful girl, I'm going to be happy. Uh, once I buy that car, once, you know, if, if I only make like my whole mindset, I'm only going to make $100,000. Once I make $100,000, i am going to buy my parents a house. I promise them. <clears throat> and then I'm going to have enough money to go through law school and start my own practice. That was it. Yeah. But, you know, you make $100,000, you say, well, how about two hundred? Right. About a million, about ten million, you know, and it, and it just you lose focus, you lose sense and direction. You know, it's like to me the greatest work I ever written. And I'll send you a copy when it's finished. Is this journal called Narco Mindset Journal? <clears throat> because everything in life is about mindset, right? It's how you look at the world through what lenses are you looking at. So <clears throat> when people look at me and say, <clears throat> "Excuse me." Why are you not afraid? I said, because, number one, now as a Christian, <clears throat> 365 times in the Bible, God tell me, fear not, right? So that's number one. But number two, when I was not a Christian, because, dude, I fell off an airplane. I got shot 28 times. My vehicle got shot, and I didn't even get a scratch. I was tortured by him in jail. I didn't die. So am I going to die with a virus? got to be out of your mind. <laughs> it, all, <laughs> it all comes back to Corona. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, and so I fear not. <clears throat> words, you know, there's words that I don't, I don't even believe they exist in my vocabulary. 
Gosh. And failure. You know, uh, how can I fail? To me, they're all learning experience. Let me. If if I don't learn, then I'm not failing. I'm just being stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. That's and I think that that fear of failure stops so many people from reaching potential um, because they're worried about whatever people could say or like the experience of being labeled a loser. Almost like what you were saying with Pablo Escobar, these major drug dealers. It's that's their identity. People get so wrapped up in that singular identity, they don't want to branch out because they're finding success in that one identity. And um, it limits people. It's very limiting to have that kind of mindset. Extremely limiting, you know, and, and you get nowhere in life. Right. That, but it's amazing how many people, that's how they live, right? Yeah, I, I don't understand, especially just, and I teach and you see it with kids and you're constantly encouraging them, man, like, dude, just try it. Just try. See what, like, it's okay if you fail, just keep trying and eventually you won't fail. Right. And then you're going to feel great because you've succeeded and something about, and it, it almost goes back to like, why do people gravitate towards this lifestyle? Well, because you feel successful in doing something that others aren't able to do. And I think that just snowballs on people. Yeah, no, without a doubt. It's no, it's no balls big time. And, <clears throat> and you know, like I tell my kids, listen, your greatest learning, your greatest learning is are going to occur when you do things that don't work out. Right. I said, now, did you make the wrong choice? I said, well, how can you ever define? That? How can you ever determine in life that you've made the wrong choice about anything? Why? Because you have no idea what would have happened if you made the other choice, you know? So did I, what I did was wrong? Yeah. Did I make the wrong choice? Well, of course, the consequences were horrific, but so what if I didn't and uh, I would have been run over or killed by a client that lost a locket? I don't know. Yeah. So in life, I don't look at anything. I said, what matters in life is not how you how many times you fail. It's how you get up every time. Right. Now, if, you, if you're going down road A and you run up against brick wall and you say, well, let me run against, let me go down road A again. <laughs> I say, you're not making a mistake. You're just being a freaking idiot. <laughs> You know, yeah. But you should have figured out that you needed to ro- go road B. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel I feel like you should have. <laughs> like I still can't get over it. I feel like your road A absolutely should have been when you said I'm hopping on a plane to tell this motherfucker who's taken over three governments that he ain't screwing me over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was so stupid. You know, and 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 yeah, because other other component. I mean, my God, I didn't come around any drugs, man. I mean, Sean, listen, if my attorney had not told on me because they caught him bribing judges, which that's what he used to do for me anyway, he had not told on me, the government would have never known, ever. Because you had enough legitimate business to um, justify the lifestyle that you were living? Oh, yeah. Plus, plus number one, I didn't flaunt it in their face like a lot of uh, people do. Mm. Number two, there were no wiretaps ever. The government has never had a wiretap on me. Number three, they've never had a picture of me with a compromising person. Oh, because that's that power of three thing where you're just yeah. keeping distanced. Exactly. And we went through extremes. You know, it's like one of the things that I write in this journal as changing a mindset is like proactive. And going back to this virus again, why are we in the mess we are? Because you know what America is? The most reactive country on God's earth. We have no clue about being proactive, right? Our child gets on drugs. Our child takes his life, and we say, I never saw it coming. I'm like, really? 
Yeah. Or maybe you're just not looking or you're not worried about who he's hanging around with. I mean, it's tough parenting. You know that. So we let things happen and then we'll react. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, people want to say that this president messed it all up. Well, we had, you know, oh, because, you know, uh, Trump is not that smart. You know, I, I'm like, look, so let, let me give you that. Let's say, and I'm not saying that's how what I believe, but let me say that. Yeah. Well, the whole world believed that Clinton and Obama were geniuses. Well, what the hell didn't they do something about it? Because Bush was talking about it back in 2000. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. that's what we are, right? We just react. Yeah. We wait till it happens. So we'll spend trillions of dollars in building up our entire uh, military for a war that we're never going to fight, right? We got to find wars to fight because no one's going to drop a, a nuclear bomb anywhere. That's ridiculous. But we will not take this money and fight uh, homelessness, you know, poverty. Poverty, yeah, exactly. Leveling the playing field, making education easier so you can have smaller class sizes so kids can get more intensive individualized instruction versus whatever, having like 25, 30 in a class and getting no attention. <laughs> Yeah, pay teachers. Pay teachers what they deserve. Yeah. So I've got to. When you said that that they had nothing on you, like I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be insulting, but like you must have been the best money launderer bank guy in the world to have this much cash, and it seem legit like that. Or is that just like part of the time back then? Because with the without having the heavy digital stuff, they're not able to trace it as easily because you're doing more paper. Yeah, remember, so we're going back to 77, 78. There was no money on laundry law. And, and the fact is that cocaine oh. was not even in the DA radar. So the DA was focused on marijuana and heroin. So there's no like there's no money laundering laws, which means you never had to explain why you have $3 million all of a sudden? No, a lot of those money laundering laws came because of what I did. <laughs> no, I mean, literally, Sean, I mean, we were, I, I had bankers friends of mine. I would literally go into the bank whenever the bank closed. And uh, with, with now that part about Scarface is true. We would go in there with grocery bags full of money and deposit it. And then from there, it would be deposited to a different form number of bank accounts that I had created. But we did, and I'd, I'd give the guy, you know, uh, if I deposited a million dollars, i give him $10,000. Well, he, he probably makes $5,000 a year. Oh, so yeah. he like call me up. When are you gonna make the next deposit? So, and the thing is because I could justify the lifestyle I live. I pay taxes, right? You know, even when I was making millions, I was declaring millions, right? I declare it as Fifth Amendment source income. Notice now oh. that that doesn't exist. Right? Fifth Amendment source income. Like I've heard of the Fifth <laughs> Amendment, but I'd never heard of Fifth Amendment source income. Right, which, well, now it's not allowed, right? Because Congress <laughs> passed laws against it. But back then, it's like, okay, I can't tell you how to make the money because I have a Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate myself. Oh, my God. So take my money and don't worry about it. And they didn't even care. So I'll tell you I'll tell you a neat story that happened in 79. So I get arrested in April, beginning of April 79. My tax uh, return is due April 15th. So we file an extension, and then I'm meeting. I you know I have a million dollars worth of attorneys, right? I have the best of criminal minds in the world. So I hired this guy out of Washington named Austin Doyle. Cowboy comes in with cowboy boots, <clears throat> talk like a redneck, great guy. 
he had rep he had represented Nixon. And I'm like, what are we gonna do? Because I got to file this tax return by October the latest. And uh if I file the tax return and I declare, they're gonna use it against me. He's like, Oh, easy what we're gonna do. I'm like, what? He said, Okay. So let's sit down and figure out if they have been following you, how much money could they trace that you have spent? So I said, okay, so let's say that they see me spending a million dollars a year. He said, okay, let's declare $3 million. I said, all right. He does the tax return. I owe, you know, 800 and some thousand dollars, whatever it was at that time. I don't remember. And he says, so, which you're going to give me the money <laughs> and you're going to file this tax return with me. And then I'm going to write a letter to the government, which he did, which the letter is still used today in the IRS Academy. And I'll tell you why I know. So he writes a letter and he says, my client is a drug dealer. My client has made millions last year. My client is declaring all his income. My client has filed a tax return with me. My client has deposited the tax debt with me, but I have advised my client under his Fifth Amendment right not to give you the tax return unless you will tell us that you will never use this tax return in any criminal proceeding that he has pending. Well, needless to say, they're not going to do that, right? <laughs> so we do. We file that. Boom. They didn't do that. And, man, I think, like... <laughs> Seven, eight years go by, or six, I don't know how many years, so I don't remember the, the number. Anyway, I get a letter from the IRS. According to our calculation, uh, you owe uh, $15,316 for 1979. If you agree, send us the money in a cashier's check and sign here. Man, I got that cashier's check so fast, I send it to them, right? Did not agree, I did not sign it, so... This is 79 tax return. So at the end, let's say 80. So I wait till 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, till the, the uh, statute of limitations run out. They never came back after me. I get the rest of the money from my attorney. Case closed. I get arrested in 1990, and they have a task force, right? Because what they wanted was my assets. Well, one of the task force members, really great guy, IRS guy named James Ruka, He's like, do you realize that we still use your letter in the IRS Academy? How the hell you got away with that? We still laugh about that. <laughs> so, so that's uh, <laughs> your your lawyer wrote to the IRS saying that he's a drug dealer, and if you want him to pay taxes, like if you want to get a bunch of money from him, you just can't ever make get him in trouble for being a drug dealer. Here's the money. Like that was the agreement. Yeah, the agreement was That's my amazing. client has filed a tax return. He's done everything he's supposed to do by law. Right. I'm his attorney. I'm telling him he cannot give it to you. He gave it to me, and I'm not giving it to you, IRS. You tell me, you write me back and say, Mr. Doyle, we hereby affirm that we will not use that tax return against Mr. Valdez in any criminal proceeding. That's amazing. Right? Yeah. So needless to say, they're not going to agree to anything. I don't even know if they read the freaking letter. But I, they didn't. Because my defense was not that I wasn't innocent. My defense was, hey, I'm a, long, I'm a drug dealer. I'm the biggest drug dealer in the country. 
But here's the deal, fellas. I have a constitutional right to be tried where I committed my offense. I didn't commit no offense in Macon. I never even been there in my life. This airplane was not going to Macon. If you want to try me, you try me in Miami. And I knew that they couldn't. So that was my defense. And we we were sure that we were going to win. I mean, I had the best. I had Gene Baker, who was the dean of law school at Harvard. Uh, Alan Dershowitz. I had everybody that you hear about. I spent over a million, million and a half wow. in, uh, in 1979, 1980. And I lost every single damn appeal. Same thing with bail. I get arrested, I get to Miami, and they're like, the government's asking for a $7 million bond. And I'm looking around wondering who the heck they're talking about, right? <laughs> Definitely not a 23-year-old kid that has never had a traffic ticket in his life, right? And my attorney said, well, no, they're talking about you. I'm like, are they out of their mind? You know, you, first of all, I know enough about law. I'm going to be a lawyer. That the only reason <clears throat> that you do not give bail to someone is if they're a danger to the community, a murderer, not a drug dealer. And uh, and I'm like, how the hell? These people don't even know who I am. Little did I know that my attorney, who was, you know, you tell your attorney everything, was one of my closest friends, was just telling him everything, everything about me. You know, who I was, how many millions I was making. I mean, they were like in shock. Did you find out why? Like why <clears throat> yeah, the attorney they, was they talking a, to them? And, 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 and you know when I found out? Oh, man, that's another story. So let me finish the bond story. I'll tell you how I found out about that because <clears throat> that was <clears throat> unbelievable. So they're like, they said the bond at $2 million. I was going to make it, but my attorney said, you can't make it, my new attorney, because all, <clears throat> all they're waiting for you is to put up the money for that, and they're going to use that against you. So I'm in jail without bail. And uh, the, the reason the government justified it, and I had Alan Dershowitz defend me on the bail, it got all the way up to the Supreme Court. Is that the government said the level of drug dealing that Mr. Valdez deals in, not only is he a danger to his community, he's a danger to the whole world. And uh, and I forgot which is, uh, Supreme Court justice says, in this court's opinion, Mr. Valdez is a financial genius who can move all around the world. There's accounts all over the world that government doesn't know about. So anyway, <clears throat> they uh, they denied my bail. <clears throat> I never knew how, where was all this coming from? My second time around, a guy comes, another inmate, trying to make a couple bucks, says, hey, have you ever done a freedom of information? I said, no, why? He said, don't you want to find out what happened in your case? It, I mean, it's been already enough years that they got to give it to you now. I'm like, <clears throat> what do I care? I mean, I'm doing the time. That's not the matter. I did the time. He said, come on, man, I need 100 bucks. So I'm like, all right, go ahead, file it for me. And he did, and I got it back. <clears throat> then one day, Sean, I'm sitting in my <clears throat> bunk reading through this, and the way they give you freedom of information, right? So they give you all the notes from the government, but they black out with a black magic marker the name of anybody okay. that is of, of value to the government, like a witness or anything like that, right? Gotcha. So <clears throat> they talk about a conversation. And they, and, they, and they black out one name <clears throat> and left the other two names there. Well, I knew exactly who that other name was, you know. Mm. Then, then all the pieces started to fall like a jigsaw. Boom, boom, boom. Why did he not represent me? 
why did he end up hiring another lawyer for me when I've been paying him hundreds of thousands of dollars a month that in case me or any of my people get in trouble, he's to represent us, you know? Right. Never, never knew any of that, you know? And then guess what, brother? <clears throat> I'm being transferred from Atlanta to Miami, and uh, I have to go and put my name in the phone list to use the phone. And who is right in front of me? My attorney, Mel Kessler. Okay? Okay. He had finally, he had finally got busted again. The guy was crooked as all can be. Greatest, greatest drug lawyer in the 70s <clears throat> in Miami. Anyway, he sees me, and he thought he saw a ghost. <laughs> He's like, I'm dead. I'm dead. So he went to hug me. I moved back. I said, don't hug me. I said, I'll go to you. After you sign the name, I'll sign my name, and I'll go see you in your room. So he just knew. I mean, he just knew that. That's it. He had minutes left. You know how much power I had. <clears throat> hundred bucks, would have, I could have had anybody. Just shank him right there. So I went there, and I mean, he was like shaking, sweating. And I'm like, Mel, you don't have to worry about it, man. I'm a Christian. I forgive you. Wow. I said, you know, but for the rest of your life, you're going to worry. Looking behind your back. Because see, he knew what happened when I found out. I called the attorney, Mari Weinberg, that represented me. And I said, I know who told on me. And he's like, who? And I said, Mel Kessler. Well, Mel is the one that hired Marty, right? And he's like, impossible. I said, I said, Marty, I have it here on the Freedom of Information. So I'm sure he told Mel two years before I run into him, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm like, you don't have to worry about it. And then he says, he says, listen, I got cancer. I got probably less than six months to live. And he did. He died of cancer in prison. Oh, wow. And he said, uh, I'm sorry. They had me and, you know, I don't know. I got blinded and, and, I, and I turned you in. So I'm like, hey, you know what? I'm a Christian now. <clears throat> God's forgiven me. <clears throat> you probably did me. <clears throat> sorry about that. That's all right. <clears throat> yeah, you've been talking oh, a lot. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I, said, I said, you actually probably gave me, did me the biggest favor in the world. Because when I went to prison, the world changed, and, and the people I left in charge of the cartel, they went in, uh, and they were doing, like, like horrific things, you know? And they ended up having murders and all of that stuff. And, you know, had I stayed with them, I would have ended up, you know, being with them. So they did me, he did, I said, you actually did me a great favor, you know? And I'm like, okay, fine, you know? And uh, I said, here you are. I said to myself, look. Ironic. I got life. I mean, I'm going to go home. And yet, you know, these people are, this guy's going to die miserable in prison of cancer. Right. You know? So, uh, yeah, that's how life works. I gotta, I gotta ask, how are you, or why are you being so open about being a drug dealer on the arrest? Like, I feel like that would be the last thing someone would want to say. Or like, just be like, yeah, I'm, I'm not denying I'm not a drug dealer, but what I know is you guys can't prove it. Like, that's amazing to me. Well, because that was our defense, right? That was the best defense that we had. That's a, that is amazing that that's the best defense. I, and because here's the thing. We knew that we had a constitutional right. And we knew that we probably would lose in, uh, in trial, right? Because, look, if you have the best chance, if you're innocent, there's a 50% chance the government's going to win. 
So we knew that there was no way that well, I wanted to take that chance. So therefore, uh, I went ahead and my attorney said, look, we can win this without no doubt about it. For sure, we can win that you got this right. And uh, this is the best defense that we that we're going to have. We got to we got to fight this case for appeal. Man, you know, yeah, I just like it's I don't know. I, it's it's just so insane. I would think like because what was the actual charge? It was was it drug dealing charges or was it more about the money that they were coming after you for? It was conspiracy to import. OK, you know. And uh, so conspiracy to import narcotics, which is the only country in the world that has that. Can you hold on a second, Sean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hold on. Yeah, so what happened in the United States is the only country in the world that has uh, the conspiracy laws. And that's one of the things that Pablo Escobar was really fighting about conspiracy means and, and they said that it was a law that was created by uh by uh kennedy when he wanted to go after uh you know after jimmy hoffa so in the conspiracy law says that you and i for example say today hey sean let's bring a load of cocaine and he uh... said okay let's do it and we commit one overt act let's say you i said look we need to buy an airplane so we go and look for an airplane. That's the end of it, got right? You. No load came in. We never went out and got the load. Nothing. Mm. We can get a life sentence for conspiracy to import narcotics into the United States. All right. So Pablo Escobar said, you cannot take me to the United States and charge me for conspiracy. So what he was fighting was the extradition, right? For conspiracy... When it's not a crime in my country, it's wow. sort of like we killed a cow in the United States and all of a sudden India indicts us for killing a cow. <laughs> well, listen, dude, it's not a crime in the United States to kill cows. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, I'm just being general. Yeah, so yeah, that's no, what it yeah. was. When they can't catch you with nothing else, they catch you with a conspiracy. And it's very difficult to beat it. You know, because yeah, you have because, all these acts that prove it, that support it. No, and, and everything is said against you. Yeah. So, how, for example, so you you are my character witness that you know that I was innocent, that I was not at that table when they said that we we're going to do that. But you ain't got no money and I need you to come for my trial. If I pay for your airline ticket, if I pay for your airline ticket, I get charged with contempt of court. You know, oh, my God, But the government can get 10 witnesses to lie for them, pay them, put them on salary, do anything they want, and it's legal. Right. So if anybody's listening to this and wants to start a life of crime, here's my suggestion. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> the odds are totally against you, brother. <laughs> you know, there's no way you can beat the United States government. Like this agent, this agent that uh, picked me up from Miami. You know, I never forget. Of all the agents, I know two or three of them. And by the way, all the stuff that people talk about how bad the FBI, listen, law enforcement are phenomenal people. There's bad everywhere. There's an idiot everywhere. But as a whole, the FBI and the DA, they're phenomenal agencies. 
of people dedicated to make your life and my life safer. Right. You know, so I need to clarify that. Listen, they were my enemies forever. They, their job was to catch me. My job was not to get caught. So whatever they did to catch me, it was fine. But they never, never lied. Uh, did not fabricate anything. They used everything that was available to them in, in the uh, legal world. Right. And I did the same. Right. But this agent picked me up from uh, Panama and he says to me, I just read my file, your file, and I have a son your exact age. My son would never, ever in a million years be able to achieve what you have achieved. But he says, it's amazing what you could have done in life. But son, he says, in about two hours, you are going in front of a judge. And they're going to read out, a prosecutor is going to read out the following charges. United States of America versus George Valdez. He said, remember, that's 20 million people as you. So let me give you your odds. I go home every Friday. I get paid every Friday. And it does not matter if you get away with it a million Fridays. Doesn't affect my life at all. I can afford to let you get away with it a million times. But you cannot afford to let me catch you once. Mm. So if you want to know about odds, those are pretty terrific odds. And you know, he was 100% right. And uh, that's why you see all these people now, you know, that. Do you see that ever, ever enjoy what they have? Impossible. Nobody does, you know? Yeah. Most people die. And, uh, you know, Cuban, we have a saying, ill gain money is ill spent. So, mm. you know, it's just not worth it, man. It's better to flip hamburgers. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart than to do, because it ain't easy money. People think that it's easy money. It's not. Yeah, it doesn't sound it's like It's fast easy money. money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People are like, oh, you made millions because you were dealing cocaine. Man, I was in prison with thousands that were dead broke. And I was the only millionaire. <laughs> so, it was, now, Muslim, now, can you make fast money? Yeah. If if you make it, that's a big if. Like I tell people, if my mother had wheels, she'd be a bicycle. But she doesn't. <laughs> She's just my mom. So, you know, so that's, that's the funny thing about it. I mean, it's. All the odds are stacked against you. And I don't even I don't even imagine how they do it in today's world. Because back then, man, there was no technology. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we bought uh fax machines, when the first fax machines came out, you're too young for that, but you know, they were thirty thousand dollars a piece, man. This big old thing. We used to use uh telexes. Anyway, so these fax machines come out. I think they were made by Canon. And uh what we soon discovered, and they were like, what were they, man? They were like over the size of a little carry-on suitcase. Okay. So, and they weigh about the 35 kilos they don't let you carry anymore. So, anyway, we really figured out really quick one thing. If we send a fax and our line was tapped, they wouldn't, the fax won't go through. It will be goggled up. Oh. Not enough strength in the uh, telephone line to be able to send a fax and tap a line at the same time. Wow. So when we send a message, <clears throat> so the first thing we did when whenever we went to any house or any place that we needed to use a certain phone, uh, even though we had codes, even though we had, uh, you know, with technology to 
gobble up the conversation and, and very, I mean, sophisticated codes. Even though we did all that, the first thing we do is try to send the fax. If the fax got through, we could talk on the line. If it didn't, we knew that it was tapped. Were you, that's amazing. Were, were you of the mindset, like, even if a phone isn't on, people can still be listening to me? Or you never got that deep into, like, the power of them to tap something? No, no, no. <clears throat> that was my mindset. I used to always tell people, do not ever say anything on that freaking phone that you're not willing to be read out in front of 12. Oh, no. I'm, <laughs> I meant, like, if the phone's hung up, just you, so you and me in a in a room talking, and there's a phone in the room. Do, did you were you paranoid enough to think like they can still be listening even if the phone's not on? No, they didn't have the technology back then, but it wasn't the phone. It was bugs, man. We we I I had a guy pay five thousand dollars a week, and all he would do is sweep everywhere I went. He swept every vehicle that we had every morning. He swept every home. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, oh yeah, big time. Got you. No, no, no. We spent a lot. A lot in security. That's why I tell people, like, how do you think you're going to make it? You know, we had millions of dollars. You know, we made millions, but we spent millions, you know, in, 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 in corruption. We, we we call it corruption, but now they call it lobbying. So, <laughs> Dude, that's so true. God, it's just so... Yeah. Uh, I don't want to get into that. But yeah, I mean, you're right about that. <laughs> I mean, you're just dead on about that. Yeah, it is. And so we, we constantly... Well, we could never, going back, what we never were able to buy ever was an FBI or a DEA agent. Never. And we tried. And listen, we didn't want to buy them like uh, transporting drugs for night. We just wanted to buy information. Right. You know? That's what we got. Information was critical to us. You know? Like, who's been under, who's under investigation? What operations are going on? But we bought every law, local law enforcement. Not everyone. When I say everyone is... Humans, we talk like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we bought a lot, let's just put it this way. Uh, we bought the ones that meant something. Right. I'll tell you who was uncorruptible. Um, Janet Reno. And smart as hell. Janet Reno. Good God. She was a U.S. attorney, man. I she remember. She was a state attorney in Miami. But all her investigators, under our payroll. Do you think she's like, is she paranoid about that? Like she knows, like, I think she's dead now. Oh, well, I mean, not at the time. Like, is she sitting there with all this ambition? And if you have the people who are kind of clerking and working for her on your payroll, is she aware of that? Or you just think she's like, man, you're so good. We can't find anything on you. You know, uh, one, uh, there was a case, a famous case in Miami called Video Canary. And it was very canary because they had this guy got busted and he decided to cooperate with the government and he had an office at this hotel and he put a, uh, a camera there and he filmed everyone he talked to. So, of course, I I would never go through anything like that. I mean, I never met anywhere with anybody, you know. So, uh, yeah, and you would if, if I had a meeting with you that was important, it'd be in my office. Gotcha. But that was totally soundproof. There was no way they could film it, bug it, nothing. So, but they did on this, and they indicted like 150 people. Most people that are walking, getting like deals for nothing because they realized that her chief investigator was in the payroll, mm. you know? So, yeah. But she was, another thing about Janet Reno, man, she was by the book. I'm going to tell you something, man. You know, if she felt that the law said something, it didn't matter what Clinton wanted done. 
She wasn't going to go with it. She was her own person, man. She was sharp, intelligent, you know. Yeah, because she pretty tough cookie. She was the one that impeached Clinton, right? Wasn't like that's kind of her claim to fame. I think that's why I, her name resonates with me. Or am I wrong about that? I don't remember. No, Clinton got impeached by the uh, by the uh, Congress. Yeah, I thought she was the one that brought. I'm gonna have to look at it now. No, she was the US, she was the U.S. attorney for him at that time. But uh, yeah, there was famous case also with this Cuban kid that uh, mom came uh, from Cuba and the the father stayed behind. And then the mother died crossing and and they appealed to send him to Cuba. But uh she would not like I feel right now, US attorneys will do what the president says, not only Barr or anyone Barr and, and before, but not her, man. I think she was like the last uh solo ranger. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. After that it's all, you know. Yeah, well, you pick, you pick what you was gonna do. You're bidding for you, you know. Right. Yeah, and that's got a just the selection process, and I'll, I don't know a ton about it, but I always it always weirds me out that like you're gonna pick someone to enforce the law, but I get to pick you, and like of course right away that's like a power play, right? Like they have to be indebted right. if they're trying to get that kind of position and put that on their resume. It's uh, yeah, and at the end that, that you just said it. Look. <clears throat> Why you see all this? Why you see very wealthy people spend tons of money to run for an office that doesn't pay nothing, and half of the people are gonna hate you? Yeah, because of the power, the ultimate power. Yeah, yeah. You know, <clears throat> you know how we're gonna fix this country? One term limits, and the federal government pays for all the elections. Because when it costs a billion dollars to run for president, you know who's gonna run the presidency? It ain't the president. Yeah. I don't give a damn what anybody says. I know. Listen, I've bought enough politicians in my life to tell you how it works. <laughs> you know, there's not too many of them back then that would uh, turn down twenty, thirty thousand. There's not too many of them right now. Right now, they need the money to run. It, it, it's it's horrific. You see the amounts yeah. of money that it takes to run for office. Yeah, it's the yeah the media buys. It, it's crazy. People. So you know, and and so that's where you bring in all this corruption. So who runs the government? Special interest groups. I mean, look at look at the money we spend on the war on drugs, right? You talk about insanity. My God. And cocaine is 15% of all death, okay? Cocaine-related. So I'm not saying that that's, that's nothing, you know, one death is too many. Yeah, but bang but for op- your buck. Opioids is 65%, brother. Yeah. And, man, I'm, t- I'm speaking to people who have gone through the, like, government counseling, right? Like, the rehab places that are, like, state-funded. It's a, it's a fucking joke, man. I mean, like, yeah. you have an underpaid counselor who hasn't been to school in 40 years to learn any kind of new techniques – reading off of papers and having you fill in worksheets and there's no like there, there's no help you just go through it to like avoid <clears throat> prison sentences or to avoid a level of probation but you're not getting the help you need and it's completely on like education almost completely underfunded in areas of highest need yeah like, no no it is it is a joke yeah. look there's only one rehab that works i know that it works one to me team challenge you right. know you don't how are you going to tell me that you have lived this life of selfishness because every addict, every criminal is a selfish individual, right? How you lived all this life and all of a sudden in 30 days someone's going to give you wonderful words and happy-go-lucky. You're, you're a changed person. Life is good. So be asked. Now, do you want to work? Teen challenge. One year, it's a Christian base, they change your heart. First yeah. thing is, they break you down of that 
selfishness. You're selfish, but we're going to get you up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and you're going to go out there, and you're going to paint roads in the middle of the highway or whatever. You know? And it works. It's a faith one, because at the end of the day, I believe that what really transforms a person is when their heart is transformed. Oh, 100%. And I've even gotten into people with um, the way that they deal with crimes and addicts is they basically shame them more. They make them feel shame because they take their license. So now you feel like you're not a man or they make you feel bad because you can't get a job or you can't vote or they limit your rights and you ostracize yourself. And when you start feeling that way, it triggers your need for drugs so that you avoid feeling that way. And it just spirals. And there's no empowerment for anybody who's addicted to substances. It's all shame-based in the government system. And it, it just drives them to do more drugs. Um, I, I don't I don't get why I don't get why the funding can't be or the like the curriculum can't just be a more holistic healing type thing versus whatever the hell they're doing now, which isn't working at all. Yeah, no, without a doubt. And uh, and you know, mental health, Sean, we just ignore mental health, and uh, that's the problem. That's what our prisons are full of: yeah. people with mental health. They're not full of criminals, man. These people are not criminals. Most of those people are nobody. You know, they just uh, uh, either were brought up. You know, I look at my granddaughter. I just, well, right now, my, I have a brand new, not newborn. He was born in January, uh, boy. And I looked at him the other day and I told the mom, I said, look, there's nothing in the world that child is going to like for. I said, but how unfair. How many kids are born in crack houses right. and, and abandoned and they can't defend themselves? They can't even, you know, uh, ask for help. Yeah. And uh, and they stay there in a wet or crappy diaper for a whole day. Yeah. And, and it's so sad. And then that that kid ends up that pattern continues and he ends up breaking the law. And we say, look, uh, those people don't have a chance. That's bullshit, man. It's just that we society have failed. Yeah, you got to fail miserably. Yeah, you got to get the support early, um, especially early. But you can't. And it's almost like Corona, right? Like you can't you can't mandate that I have to send my kid to your preschool if I don't want to. But there should absolutely be an option that like early, early on, man, it should not cost that much money to get quality daycare so that you can work a minimum wage job. Like you can't afford it. Right. You know, and look, that- like uh, I'm, uh, I'm the biggest capitalist in the world. But and I say, I say, if Jeff Bezos left his job as an uh, analyst on Wall Street, went to the garage and he ended up, you know, literally risking his all the money he had and his father's money. To create Amazon and become a billionaire, good for you. Yeah. But do it. But do it. There's got to be some equality. Then you can pay people freaking fifteen dollars an hour. That is not even a decent wage. Yeah. You know, and the government that allows that is a corrupt government. So how does communism and socialism come in? Exactly like that. Yeah. When you have a society where all the money is owned by a handful, and the rest of the world, like we have in America, where the middle class has disappeared, starving. I mean, how can we have the highest unemployment ever in history and Wall Street and the stock market is going to the roof? I have no, it's, I mean, well, think about that. It's so it, ridiculous, man. Yeah, I don't get that either because it, it crashed and it was cut in half. And you're like, oh, man. And I, I mean, I saw it. I, I was starting to get into swing trading myself and buying different stocks and understanding dividends and ETFs and RIETs. And you're like, you're figuring it out. So I saw the crash and I was like, Jesus. And I'm like, dude, this thing's gonna stay flat till the till you reopen the country. And it's like, nah, you've already gained back half of what you lost. And you're like, 
I gained back half of what I lost by the country having its highest unemployment rate, businesses being shut down, and the government going into more debt. It, yeah. it, it makes no sense. Like, like I can't put that together in my head, man. I, it's odd to me. You're right about that. No, no, it, it is. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's like it's Jeff Bezos' lifestyle has changed because instead of having $180 billion after a divorce, he's only going to have 80 Right. Of course not. But the difference is that five dollar difference an hour is going to empower his people yeah. to be decent human beings, man, and it's going to be able to help people. So now people say, "Oh, stay home," you know. Uh, don't you worry about the health? Is more important than the economy, dude. Bullshit. <laughs> you know, the economy is a lot of people's health. Yeah, dude, hundred percent. And that's that's. I don't know. There's all sorts of suicide trends that go with the economy. Going down, suicides going up. Um, I mean, it, it is interrelated because you, you feel unease, and you talk about people with mental health; they're holding on by a thin thread. And all of a sudden, they let worry and fear get into their hearts. Um, they'll hurt themselves. You know, if yeah, they feel hopeless, exactly. they're going to hurt themselves, man. It's true. And then plus, they get out of a schedule. Sometimes the routine is what keeps people functioning. You know, or now they got their kids at home that they can't deal with because they used to get the kid out for school, and now they're like kids around all the time, and they just keep getting stressed. And I don't know. It's it's a screwed up, um, it is, it's a screwed up cycle that I think needs to, uh, it, it needs to change people The you're right about the, how much is too much. Can we just figure that out and then make a little more equality in wages? Exactly. You know, let, 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 let people be decent. Listen, my parents came from Cuba, minimum wage, they saved enough to buy a little house that they lived all their lives and, uh, and they were fine, man. They lived a decent life. Yeah. They only had one car, you know, we didn't have a TV for three years, but they were happy. And today, people got to work two, three jobs. Uh, you know, teachers cannot live on the salary, and they're teaching our future leaders. Yeah. Come on, man. You know, this is all, that's why we're in the mess that we're in, you know? And that's why people will complain that, oh, man, you got all the socialist uh, politicians getting in office. I said, Tim, right. And they're going to give me more and more. And you know what? Values are going to disappear a lot. And it's whose fault? Our fault. Because the greed that we have allowed some to become so rich at the expense of others becoming so poor that, you know, that's what happened in Cuba. You know, my dad hated Fidel. And I said to my dad, I said, yeah, because you were, you were part of that 5% that owned 90% of the wealth. Right. But when 90% of the people have nothing and a guy comes and says, Hey, I'm going to make everything equal. Everybody's going to have the same amount of money. Everybody's going to have great healthcare, great education. Yeah. You're going to say, Oh no, you're a communist. You're a socialist. You know, and that's what we better wake up to the fact that we got to create more equality. Yeah. You know, it's a shame what's going on in America. Man, that was a good, uh, that was a good rant. It's, a, it's always interesting to hear someone who's kind of has that business mind like you suggest, um, have perspective on that, you know, cause, cause it is, it, you, you've been saying it the whole time, like that power and that greed regardless of if it's through cocaine or through Amazon prime, <laughs> like that, that, that hubris, that reach, it, it makes you super hungry, you know, and for more. And it's weird. Cause you don't need more, you know, you, you just don't need more. Well, you don't, I tell people, listen, the richest person in the world ain't the one that has the most, <clears throat> the one that needs the least. Yeah. You had said that last time and I, I've not, I hadn't heard that before, but that's super profound to, to just, when you think about it, because that is what is wealth, right? It's the, the fact that you don't need 
It's not that you have, it's that you don't need. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I, I, what is money, man? Money just a piece of paper. Right. You know? And trust me, uh, listen, I know what it is to live with nothing when I went to prison. I know what it is to live with making a million dollars a month. <clears throat> you live the same. The only difference, you just got more stuff. Right. That's all. So true. You know? George, let me, I, I have to ask you this because um, someone had asked me about this as well. And it goes almost all the way back to the depicting of the the gangsters. So like Pablo Escobar is Pablo Escobar. Well, Scarface was fictional. Is there a particular individual that you think actually was that? Or is it just a collection of what what that lifestyle was like? Like an eclectic collection of the dealers at the time. Actually, there was nobody just like that. You know, uh, this book uh, that I told you about, Otto Scarface, mentioned that uh, Scarface was taken from me, from my life, because of Roberto Suarez, because of the mutiny hotel that I hung out, because I had a tiger and Tony had a cougar. I had a cougar and Tony had a tiger. But I think it's, you know, it's like talking about narcos, and I don't put narcos down because it's entertaining. And it, But we got to, when we look at all the shows, we got to realize that's all they are, entertainment, right? Yeah. And they're not, it's not, it doesn't say based on factual, based on historical events. So yeah, yeah. we got to take it for that. They, at that time, uh, I think that it did a really horrible uh, portrayal, especially during the period of how Cubans were. Oh, really? You no. Know? Yeah, because there, there, there was no Tony Montana going around chopping people up and all that crap, you know? It wasn't. Now, there was a lot of elements that the producers took from the research of the big drug lords, you know, like the Mutiny Hotel, you know, uh, like like the cougar I had, like uh, Roberto Suarez in Bolivia, uh, like the, taking the grocery bags to the banks like Tony Montana did, you know. But one other thing about it is the earlier, like me, the early uh, people that became the main cartel, none of us used drugs. And like I said before, mm. we're businessmen. They portrayed Tony Montana as this guy that comes over the Mario Bolt lip, which really a lot of bad characters came, right? That's something Fidel really stuck it up. Jimmy Carter, you know? Yeah, that Jimmy was fucked, when, when a I... A great humanitarian, but he, he got taken big time there. Yeah, I, when I just saw that again, I was like, oh my God, how, like, I get the humanitarian aspect, but Fidel, like, that was a chess move by Fidel. Oh my God, <laughs> he emptied out all the prisons. <laughs> and let me tell you how bad these people were. In the entire history of the United States penal system, nobody has ever taken all over a federal penitentiary. No inmate group. The Mariels in Atlanta and Leavenworth took over both penitentiaries, and they were in lockdown. They were not even in population. Now, tell me about how that happened. Wow. <laughs> yeah, these people will cut a finger and throw it at you just to intimidate you. <laughs> oh, you know, people that were in those jails in Cuba since they were kids for stealing a chicken, they became... Now, the sad part about it is they were so super educated, man. Every single one of them, whereas I would say 70% of the prison population in America is illiterate, I would say that those people were geniuses in math and literature. Right. Because even in prison, Fidel made sure that uh, that they studied. Gotcha. Wow. You know? So, so Yeah, it's... I like how you said it put Cubans kind of in, a, in a, a bad light because if I'm hearing everything and reading your book, I'm like, I don't think you become this successful with this wild coke snorting, like 
life violent lifestyle. It seems like you really got to be great business mind, math, like dealing with people. I, I get you got to have a little bit of like that muscle power type stuff, but really it seems to be what they portray, to have what they portray, it you, you just got to be really, really smart. Yeah, no, and the thing, yeah, and, and yeah, like my godfather used to say, you know, uh, he said, if you got to use a gun to deal with someone, you got no business dealing with that person. Right. Number one. Number two, you don't shit where you eat, right? <laughs> so for us, it was like, man, I, I hate to I hate to even imagine, Sean, what would have happened to me if my godfather one day found out that I was snorting cocaine. I think I would have had a a rough life. You know, they uh, they they're like, hey, this is a product that we do that we sell uh, to make rich of stupid people. Mm. That that was their saying. That was his saying. So, you know, no, we, and we ran it like a business and look at everybody else that did not, they either got shot, they either died right. or they went to jail. Yeah. You know? So yeah, it was very, very different. So it was a horrible portrayal of, uh, really how that world was. And that's what Hollywood does, right? It, if, look, what do people want, man? If it bleeds, it reads, right? right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's what sells. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's definitely what it got into. Um, but that's why I like, and that's part of, again, why I was hoping to get you on, because I think just the more I, I listen to the knowledge part of the business, that's really what intrigues me. And I, I love how you said, like, that's why Pablo is holding on because that's the one thing that he has identity as where you were like, I'm not a dealer. I'm a businessman. And it's, exactly. I mean, that that's, that's just as profound as, um, the richest man is the one who has the least or needs the least. Like, I mean, it's just, yeah. it's super good insight to hear. Um, so if, yeah, if people can listen, they can understand. It's not about like the physical intimidation or just taking stupid risks because when you took your stupid risk, it, it's what killed you or not killed you, but that's, that's how you wound up getting caught. Yeah. You know, and it was funny, you know, and there's podcasts that I did, uh, on Vlad TV, uh, man, you should see the comments of people when I told them that actually Pablo was not the richest guy, you know, or the most powerful guy in the cartel, you know, and, uh, oh man, people like, I mean, they idolized the guy, like the guy was, look, he did a lot of good, but the good he did, he did it with everybody's money, not only his, but the thing about it is he was such a heinous criminal and he killed so many people. And he left so many widows and so many orphans that even if he had built a church for every human being on earth, it would have still not justified where he would make a dent on the heart. That he, I mean, he brought a whole country to his knees. The thing with Pablo was that he was the most violent right. and the most vocal. You know, But people don't realize that every group had to give him money to fight that war that he was fighting. Now, he took it upon himself. Why? Because he wanted to be a congressman. I used to tell people, if Pablo Escobar had never chosen to become a congressman, right, he probably would have been a very, very powerful person. But there were other people just as powerful with as, as much money that were more quiet than no one even no one even knows about. Do you think, and it made me think of it, remember when you had said about like the girl and she makes fun of you and you just hold that in and like it just can subconsciously make you act a certain way? Was there something in his life that happened like where he felt disrespected at some point and it was like, I'm going to be a congressman because, or like all they think I am is a criminal. So now I can be a congressman. 
Well, the thing about it, here's the funny thing. No one even knew he was a criminal. So. No one even knew at that time, you know? And, uh, but he, he went out there and they started digging. They found that he had a drug offense. Not a big deal. He had wiped out every, every other offense and stuff like that. Every other, he had wiped out, cleaned up his criminal record. But really, nobody even knew that he was, uh, you know, a criminal. And, and I, I don't know. I, I think his ego, you know, he had a lot of money, making a lot of money. And then, you know, power, the power to uh, be a politician. People say, and uh, I never had that conversation with him, that, you know, he did it because he wanted really to help uh, his community. Now, why is easy for him to become a criminal? You grew up in the world that he grew up in, you know, except there a lot of a lot of them in his community that became criminal, but many of them didn't become assassins like he did, you know? Right. Yeah, I'd forgotten that he, um, part of that was, like, that's kind of what set him over the edge, right? Or at least I remember, I hadn't studied him, but thinking back yeah, to that, Marcos. Yeah, that was it, man. Yeah, once the Congress thing happened, he felt so disrespected and then just went on a tear, right? Went on a tear, and then when you start that tear, you don't stop. I mean, literally, think about it. No one in history has made a government surrender. That's just as no one, right? Yeah, and if he had not killed those two brothers, I don't think they would have ever stopped him, ever. Because, you know, the thing about it is, he, listen, he blew up the entire Supreme Court. For a while after that, every judge that ever saw a case had a hood. You know? Oh, wow. Uh, he killed, I don't know how many hundreds of uh, police officers. He blew up an airliner. So wow. he killed two presidents or presidential candidates. He didn't care. So, you know, yeah, and since he didn't care and politicians care about news, right? then they were at a great disadvantage. And then in a country where you could bribe just about every military person. I mean, people say that he escaped, you know, out of tunnels and all that in the prison. Bullshit. He walked right out in front of all, right in front of all those military people. <laughs> yeah. So what are you, what are the business people? How are the business people trying to like calm Pablo down? Cause it seems like, like the, the business aspect, the accountant people like you, had to be going nuts that this dude is bringing all this attention. Or am I wrong about that? Listen, after that, there was no calming him down. You know, that was it. He was, he was gone, man. He was like, it was like, you know, I mean, a, a lot of people uh, enjoy the fact that he was fighting this extradition, you know, uh, which was a big deal to a lot of people. They didn't want to come to uh, prison in the United States. And he was, in essence, fighting for everybody, right? So they enjoyed that part. But some of them realized that, you know, he was going to bring everything down eventually. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Plus, it's costing money, right? Like you had said, like the partners are having to give him money to continue to fight this way. And that's why I'm like, I, I'm, I'm surprised they just didn't say no. Or, or they didn't say, like, well, take that's how the, how the that's how the war with the Cali Cartel got started. You know, we're giving $250,000 per group to him a month. Then he increased it to a million. And then one of the guys from Cali got, uh, I don't know if he got behind or he just did not want to give it, you know? And, uh, like, they have a knock on his OBS. And uh, Pablo said uh, threatened him. And the guy was one that wasn't going to be threatened. And then they went the whole war. Stupid.
stupid because originally they were all, everybody was partners. Right. But, you know, like I said, you know, once you do things like that in life, Sean, yeah, it's it does, you just lose sense of, of it all, you know. Once a, once a human life means nothing to you, you know, what the heck, man? After that, what is there? God, you know, that's man. That's a great point. Like if, if imagine if people actually looked at people like you do a bug or an ant, like that's a dark place to be. God. It is, man. It's really, really dark. I mean, his whole thing was, he tell you, Hey Sean, we're in a war. There's casualties in wars. It wasn't like he was, uh, uh, I'm about to kill people. There's going to be, uh, innocent people die. And, you know, I got to him, it is not that he wanted to kill innocent people, but I, I don't think the thought that people were innocent even crossed his mind. You know, he's in a war, right? Yeah, he felt like, like a God, How many people do, do we kill with those drone strikes? Yeah, right. You know, we just kill targets? Come on, man. Give me a break. Yeah. You know, how many people we have killed in our military? Totally innocent, you know? Yeah. So... And that's how he looked at it. He he actually thought that he was in a war. Right. You know? Yeah, the ends and, ends justify the means kind of a thing. Yeah, and then it, it just, there was no limit to what he was willing to do. God. No limit. No limit. If he killed you, buddy, <laughs> if you had a problem with him and he killed you, just count on one thing. Every male in your family is going to die. Because he didn't I, want the family coming back at him? That was his whole theory, man. Everyone's going to die. Wow. I kill, the only people that are going to die is your wife and your mother. But brothers and children and boys, they're gone. <clears throat> and he killed a lot of people like that. You know? Man. And then these, this army, the, the people that are working for him are just doing this because he just pays so well, huh? And then the fear factor once you're in of, I, I don't want to be killed. I'd rather kill them than have this happen to me. No, honestly, no. No, I think that these people... Uh, First of all, he got them all, a lot of his assassins out of that community were literally, these people were living in a cardboard box. Oh, yeah. And he did build, he built a state. Well, we all did, but he took the credit, build a stadium for them, uh, build schools, build hospitals, uh, build them houses. I forgot how many houses, 5,000 houses. So to these people, okay, so let's talk about God. So to these people, who was God? It yeah. wasn't. The one Jesus. who's feeding them, right? The one who's like giving them shelter. Exactly, exactly. You know, and uh, and so that's that was their god, and they would do anything for their god. And then of course they fall in the same trap, right? They kill one or two, and uh, they just looked at it that they were doing a job for their boss. It didn't, you know, it didn't matter. If uh, if probably one of them dead, they probably deserved to be dead. So yeah, it's pretty screwed up, man. It was just a, a whole vicious cycle. Yeah. No respect for human life. My godfather, Manuel, I never forget, man. He's like, we can never bring a life back. We can make a million dollars any day of the week we want to. We can't bring a life back. Let me, I'll be honest. I mean, I'll be transparent. I asked permission to kill two different people. Now, was I a killer? No. But you're 22 year old and you wake up and you hear that somebody wants to kill you and you got, <clears throat> and anybody can get killed, right? Any given, no matter how much security you have, no matter what you do, at any given moment, if someone wants you dead, you're going to die. So if I'm hearing that Sean wants to kill me and I got the power to kill Sean just in minutes, 
And does it make me a murderer? You know, but I thank God that when I asked permission, I was told no. You know, and because I don't know how I could live with that today had I known that I took somebody's life. You know, so yeah. and and that and that's how it all it all works out. Now you kill somebody and uh, you know, after that you justify it. Right. Like you saw the movie American Made, right? Um I th- with Tom Cruise. Okay, yeah, the pilot and he was yes. Well Barry Seal, right. Well a lot of those planes at the end were were our planes. Well the guy that killed Barry Seals was a good friend of mine. Uh and he was at, at Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. Spent there many, many years till he died. And he ended up painting the entire chapel of that. You know, you know, I told you, we built the only Catholic church inside the United States prison at Angola. And this is a place where nobody's going to go home. It was the bloodiest prison in the history of America. So, yeah, and, uh, and Miguel was there. And Miguel tells me that he had a master's in architecture, decent life, never did nothing wrong, and wasn't able to survive. And, and he sees all his friends that didn't even go to college and they had all the girls and they had all the money and they had all the cars. And one day he's like, a friend says, Hey, I gotta go do a job. You want to come with me? He went and they killed somebody. And then the guy said, Hey, don't worry. He was a child molester. So they're mm-hmm. like, okay, so you kill one and you kill two. Then he ended up liking it. He became the biggest assassin the cartel had. And he's like, uh, Hey, you know what? I justified every one of them by saying those people just don't deserve, they're bad people. They don't deserve to live. Right. So you, you justify everything that we do in life, right? I'm going to cheat on my wife because my wife doesn't satisfy me. Mm. You know, I fell out of love. I mean, like, you fell off a cliff? Is love like a cliff? <laughs> no, not, love is not a freaking emotion. It's a choice we make. I either choose to love or I don't. And if you're a Christian, you either choose to obey the commandment where God says a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. So he says the example for us and that's what we do. So there's no way you can fall out of love with your wife. You know, you just maybe fall out of heat. That's possible. But love, <laughs> if you really love the problem, we got love so confused, you know, right. in America, we love our dog. We love our job. We love our car. You know, we love our wife. So it's just, it's not like, the biblical love that Jesus gave was agape, that the love that, hey, I'm going to die for you, love. You know? Mm. The way I love my wife, even when I want to kill her or she wants to kill me. <laughs> and we've been married for 24 amazing years. And, you know, and they said, well, what is, I said, look, I'm going to tell you what I really feel love is. The thought, the thought of me going through life without my wife just makes my heart wrench. That's when you know you love someone. Now, do I love my wife because she's great in bed or she loves me? No. I love my wife and nothing she does can make me stop loving her because my love for her is not conditional her doing anything. You know? It's just the way that God does it, right? I, the way I, day I found out that, that that verse in John where it says, I love you when you were a sinner. Think about those words, man. Yeah. You know, hey, George, I didn't love you now that you're preaching. I didn't love you now that you're trying to help people. Now that you changed your life. No, I love you when you were the scum of the freaking earth. That's when I loved you. So think about how you love your spouse, you know? Wise words. George. That's, that's how I love. Now, are we going to have problems? Yeah. Right. You know? But we just got to, 
at the end of the day is, you know, does truth matter? Does your word matter? When you say, you know, unto death, what does that really mean? If not, why say it? Because the word doesn't mean anything. So anyway, it's a lot of, a lot of stuff, my brother. No, that man, that, that was, I really thought it was just going to be like a 30 minute thing. I can't believe it's another two hour thing. And I can't believe that we get to go from stories to just modern philosophies and the change in adjustment. Um, it, it's amazing. Like, it's amazing to just think that a person, again, if you go to the glorification, a person that could easily like maybe figure out ways to keep on is just like, it, it's just so not worth it. It's just so unfulfilling. It's, um, it's powerful. And I really thank you for sharing it, George. I really do. It's still- oh, my pleasure, my brother. Don't put it all in one episode. Break it down. Man. <laughs> you know, people don't get tired. No one wants to leave it to two well, hours of a Cuban rambling on. I, I don't I, – I think about that. Well, So what I can do is I timestamp. I try to break it into almost like half-hour chunks or themes. There so you go. If you go with Spotify, what you can do is just um, click on the timestamp of the topic that you kind of want to hear, and it lets you bounce around. It's actually pretty neat um, how you can do that. Um, so yeah, I, I like to put kind of it in totality because if someone wants to like go for a long drive and just listen, it's easier to see where the conversation goes, you know, it makes it more natural, I think. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, but at the same time, then you can click and find like, Oh, I just want to hear about, you know, when they go on about Janet Reno, click, go there. All right. Oh, a little bit about his law. What do you went through? Click, go there. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, that's what uh Vlad TV, I don't know if you ever listened to their podcast at 4 million subscribers. That's how he's really made it famous because he drops. Like I did a hour and a half with him and he made it into 14 episodes. Oh. And then at the end of the 14 episodes, when he released them over, I think it was over 16 days, then he releases the entire episode. Got you. Yes. Yeah, so maybe it really, it really turned out to be, uh, I thought it was pretty genius. Man, that's good. Man, that's good advice. Maybe I should, I should do that then, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm going to try to do myself. Got you. Good advice. Man, you just keep giving. And it's still weird to call you George, but George, thank you so much for uh anytime, my brother. Listen, it's really been a pleasure with you. Hate to run, but uh life calls. Yeah, right. But uh we'll we'll, hey, we'll be in touch and we'll do it again, man. Absolutely. Thank you so much, George. Have a good one. Be blessed. Take care, Sean. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye. On the subject I like most. Getting to know. I can't begin to express how fucking trippy it was for me to speak to you and just him, Dr. Jorge George Valdez. Like I said on the encore, it's like you're fucking talking to Scarface like a business genius. Um, Sir, I really appreciate the time and the insight that you gave to all of us who have listened. And one of my favorite slam dunk to the beach players, Mohamed Bombo, um, posted a meme with him and Kevin Garnett. And it was basically... When a goat speaks, you listen. Because there is so much wisdom that that man, one of the goats of businesses, has offered all of us in being successful and perspective in doing it the right way. Thanks to AndrePsyche.com for supporting the pod. Check out the website for books, clothes, prints, art, music, and podcasts. Rival. Please follow and friend the Getting to Know You pod, the better pod but not really. Actually, both are equally as good. We're the Getting to Know You Pod. It's all one word. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please subscribe, listen, rate, review the podcast on iHeart, Google Play, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, wherever. And you can support the pod financially on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O, 
N.com. Just search getting to know you pod one word. Thank you so much for your support and time. Vaya con Dios, hermanos.